Dr. Kenneth William Kirkwood is an associate professor teaching applied health ethics in the Faculty of Health Science at Western University. He received his bachelor degree in sociology at Queen's University and his PhD at Western. He also sits on the undergraduate chair of Student Academic Affairs, and Dr. Kirkwood is also involved in Western University's Department of Surgery at Shulok School of Medicine and Dentistry as a medical consultant. Dr. Kirkwood also has been teaching for almost two decades with research interests around bioethics, drug addiction, performance-enhancing drug use, moral consciousness and healthcare practices, to name a few. Dr. Kirkwood is also a two-time winner of the Faculty of Health Science Recognition of Teaching Excellence and also has recently won the Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching in 2020 at Western. I have personally taken his Introduction to Ethics and Health, course code 2610, and I found a truly thought-provoking experience. He challenges your own morality and moral reasoning. Today, he joins us to speak about what a good death is and if it is ethical to be doping in the Olympics. Finally, I leave you with one of Dr. Kirkwood's most treasured quotes. If you find someone to love in this world, you better hold on, tooth and nail, as the wolf is always at the door. Dr. Kirkwood, how you doing? Hey, everyone. Thanks for coming on to the show today. No problem. Um, so, quick question. You said in, well, Amir said in his introduction that you're a medical consultant for the Department of Surgery at Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry. What does that role entail, basically? Well, I'm, not a, I'm not a physician. So, my role, they call anybody who um, gets involved in terms of teaching uh, residents, mm -hmm. they call them medical consultants. So, even though I'm not technically medical, I consult. So, I teach them every... Twice a year, April and October, I teach the residents uh, in the hospital system. We do ethics half days, and you go in and you, the residents present on ethics things, and you comment and you work on it. So that's that's been my role since only smokes twenty ten. I've been oh. doing that. You enjoy it? It's great. It's really fascinating to hear because I'm used to teaching students, younger students, which is great, right? And then it's fun to go up and talk to residents um, because they will. You'll get the sense, you get a strong sense of what's going on in the hospital at that exact moment. And I've worked there over several crises, uh, problems, COVID, of course, um, sort of the process of coming out from COVID, although kind of still in the progress of that. But even though things like not too long ago, there was, well, not too long ago, maybe five years ago, six years ago, there was a sudden shortage of medications, uh, which had kind of not been a big thing before that. But... Uh, one of the drugs, for example, was ondansetron, which is an antiemetic. So that means that if you're taking chemotherapy or if you have a condition called hyperemesis gravidarum, so pre women who are pregnant, it's not morning sickness, it's like unrelenting sickness all the time, right? Well, they can't keep food down. So it's very dangerous, obviously, to pregnant women. Um, less so to the fetus, but actually the mother herself is in real jeopardy because the baby will just take what the baby wants. But the mother the is mom risk, is left yeah. depleted and she can't replace anything. So there's a drug for that, right? Um, and chemotherapy, same thing. But then there was a shortage. So suddenly, and this was a thing they use a lot, and they sort of treat it like here's an effective weapon against these problems. And then suddenly it's not available. So I was teaching in the middle of that crisis. So and actually we so I, we posed a question about like what are you doing about it? And it was really fascinating to hear because they were all really stressed about it, of course, because they have patients who are suffering. And there's nothing they can do. They're used to, surgeons are, 
a specific breed of physician. They're kind of they kind of fancy themselves as like John Wayne in the westerns. You know, like they're going to step in the middle of the street and they're going to sort this out because they they've got the tools and they know what they're doing. They're like the law. They're going to fix it. You know, I'm a fixer. It's literally they've said like, well, we're we do we're action people. We do stuff. It's like okay, sure. So there's a little ego there. But then to take away one of the tools that they use and to have them sort of feel helpless, they didn't cope with that very well. But you know, it was interesting to hear. So they a lot of them had to go back to the library and look up older drugs that they'd not been taught to use and found out that there's actually a whole bunch of drugs that do the same job. So then the question was, why are we using Indansetron, for example, or why are we using this drug when it's more expensive? And that led us to ethical questions about, like, should they be responsible for the cost of treatments? Because they would, if you, if one of you was pregnant, having this hyperemesis, or you're having chemo, and you were constantly vomiting and couldn't keep food down, and you're in danger. You're in an anorexic state, right? So you're not eat. You can't eat. What you know? What should you do in that situation? Well, they were talking about like, hey, we found out that there's other medications that work and they're cheaper because they're old, right? Mm-hmm. But they're just as effective. So should you be responsible? Should physicians be responsible for the costs of their intervention? Because they were used to just simply pulling out their pad and saying, here's what we're going to do, ordering it from the nurse, and then it happens, right? Now they're having to put more thought into it. So we talked about that. See, that was interesting. It was like an event that had nothing to do with it, really. But suddenly the ethical implications become clear. It's like, wow, should you be responsible for the costs of the treatments you suggest? And people felt really, it was interesting. They had lots of discussion, really heated discussion about, some were like, absolutely not. I don't need more to think about. I should only be patient-focused, not resource-focused. But other people were like, well... Why would you spend, you know, if you had more resources left over from a treatment that's equally good, why would you choose the more expensive one? Anyway, and on it went. But it's it's neat. They have these things all the time. Initially, when I first started, they were really resistant to having ethics education. They thought it was stupid, waste of time, et cetera, et cetera. What do I know? I'm not a real doctor, and so forth. But, and that was because in medical school, they weren't getting that background. But, and, and the supervising physicians weren't really supportive either. But as time went on, supervising physicians, there was more education at the school level, and then they're coming up and the supervising physicians are telling them sincerely, hey, this is important and you need to listen to this. So now I've got support from them too, from the supervising physicians. And residents have to listen to their supervising physicians because to them that's the ultimate power in the universe is this person. So it was, you know, it's been interesting. It's been an interesting development now. It's always a very gratifying thing to teach them as well as somebody different from from my undergraduate students who are their own, you know, their own, their own population. Has ethics ever failed in the healthcare setting oh, that yeah. you've seen? All the time, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, there's no... I, if one of you in the class this year, you've heard this story, you may have heard this before, right? There's no... Ethics doesn't give you an answer that's perfect. It's not math or physics where it's like, this is the correct answer and everything else is wrong. It gives you an answer that you either defend as being the best possible or the least harmful, or you know it's very much like a like a it's it's good but and there are always little buts. So yeah, absolutely, you make a decision because you think this will create the best outcome. It turns out to explode in your face, and you look like you've done something horrible. But your intentions and your actions were all geared towards doing something good. Do those Happens stay all with the you? Time. Pardon me? Do those stay with the doctors? Like those oh, yeah. times? And nurses. More nurses even more because they're the ones who actually deal with patients the most mm-hmm. in terms of time. So nurses can get really burnt out and we have a big turnover because a lot of times two things happen. One is they're 
they're feel handcuffed by regulations or the way practices change since when they were trained. So for them, sometimes it becomes undoable, right? So they get what we call moral distress, right? They know the right thing to do in a situation. They're committed to it, but the conditions don't allow them to do the right thing because they literally, not that it's hard, that it's impossible. So then they live with the fact that they're doing a, a, a half job or an insufficient job, and they know it is, and they're not happy about it, right? They're not, like, lazy. They're really committed to doing the right thing, and they can't, they can't do it. And that's, COVID would have been a nightmare for that because you would know the right treatment for your patient. You're committed to that patient's care, and you can't give it at all. So you watch that patient suffer. You watch a patient not get the care they deserve. Long-term care facilities would, are always a problem, but in, during COVID, it was just a horror, horror show. Yeah. It was a yeah. horror show. And the nurses working in there and the PSWs and all the people, if we're, you know, I believe they're committed to the patient care, but they can't, they can't keep up. There's too many of them. There's too few of them. And now you start making decisions to let people suffer or, you, you know, they're going to be on their own. might cost them their lives. And you're responsible for that. But in another way, there's nothing else you could do. Right, and we saw also a lot of that in Italy during COVID, mm-hmm. where they were having to ration care because there was such an acute shortage of things. And it's really funny because it's to, to Italy's healthcare's credit, they had a lot of well-maintained older folks who live in Italy because they have good healthcare. But it got oh, then all those folks who were still more vulnerable, but they were in great health for their age, but their overall vulnerability meant that they got sick in large numbers. So suddenly they're flooding the healthcare system, and then you have all these reports and these and these research that says you know people had to make hard decisions. Nona is going to have to die. We can't help Nona anymore. And in fact, the researchers we pour into Nona are being kept away from other people who have more viable chances of living. That's a terrible. You, I mean, making that decision, right? Looking at grandma and this person's grandma and saying she's lovely, but I can't do anything. I'm going to have to pull. I'm not going to help her anymore. There's no way that doesn't stick with you. That's, that's, yeah. That was the kind of thing that drives people out of the profession. Because it's exactly the opposite of what they went in for. Of course. I think everybody who goes into medical school, probably at the bay, at the root of it, is driven by this idea, or the, the ones who stick with it are driven by the idea that you know they want to help. They want to be in a position where they have unique skills, where they can help people who need it the most. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's what you want, right? Of course. I mean, maybe they're... <laughs> Maybe some of them, and I see this too, right? They get thrown off by, you know, media depictions and dramatic predictions or dramatic depictions of what doctors do, and then they get to the real life, and it's like, oh wow, this is less glamorous, more boring, and more stressful, and less gratifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the truth, right? But ultimately, if you're driven by the benefit you're providing patients, then that's always going to be there. But imagine now I take that away from you, like the the one the thing you went into the business for. And I say, no, it's going to be all bad decisions, and there's not going to be any happy ending to any of these stories. You can't blame anyone. They would, of course, I would leave if I was in that situation. I don't think people can sustain. They no. can They can maybe shrug that off, you know, and kind of like they don't have soldiers do. Like, they can kind of get numb to it and carry on through it. But first of all, their care is going to be much worse. And secondly, it will catch up. I mean, trauma is one of those things where if you can, if you can soldier through, that's whatever, that's you. But it will. it's just a matter of time, right? If it didn't get you early, we'll just put the clock on it. It's going to get you later. Yeah. And then you're going to fizzle out and not be not be able to function. It's just the reality. There, 
during COVID, actually speaking about the healthcare system, there was about a hundred and something drugs that were life threatening. So people needed it to live. Yeah. And it was made in China. Yeah. And remember during COVID our supply lines every supply line in the whole world got destroyed. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it was unethical for the just posing a question out there? Uh, do you think it was unethical for the United States to have those drugs be made out overseas? I, I'm personally yeah. school thought that is unethical. If yeah. it's life threatening, it should be made in home, so you have the supply line in your own home. Also, what do you define as unethical? I guess that's a good question. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, if we're gonna say that it's something that could have been avoided and wasn't. And the outcome of it is that it's harming people, and you knew better. Like, you, you have the ability to do different, but you don't. And in, by not doing it, you create harm in people. Then that's, that's, a, that's less a definition, but sort of like an operational sense of what we're talking about. Which is what happened. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, look, if you, if you outsource, if you put your production of medications overseas, I mean, it's, the, the problem is that just like in any business... I think if the, the more outsourcing you do, the more at risk you are of supply problems and labor problems and so forth. Now, for some things, whatever, if it's your if it's your candy or Coca-Cola or whatever, and it's you've outsourced to Central America, and there's some you know, some sketchy situations there in terms of, but you you make it work, then that's fine. I mean, no one died from lack of Coke. Yeah. But people die, die from lack of Andansetron or any number of other drugs, right? So. I see why they did it as a business model, and that's you would expect a private business to do that. I mean, that shouldn't be. That's not a. I don't have to be an IV person to know that's that's pretty sensible, right? If you can cut down on your production costs and all that stuff, but if you give up reliability of supply, I mean, obviously there's an ethical problem there, right? You're intentionally trading. I mean, these folks sit at a table and discuss the business move, and they say costs, huge cost benefit, reliability, yeah probably some sacrifice there but they basically weigh out the cost versus the negatives and say well the cost savings is worth it but they're probably not considering the fact that it could the, the supply issue for medication right i mean we're not talking about soap yeah exactly or other consumer products life-threatening to medication yeah, not yeah. just normal medication people, people need it to live yes right then that's a that's a thing and lots of and you know obviously people talk about me Certain countries in Scandinavia have, you know, central like socialized drug production. So, like the com- the government is responsible for producing the medications of this kind, not the not the erectile dysfunction drugs or the kinds of other medications that are not. No one ever died from uh, lack of erection, as far as I know. So that whatever, but like your 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 cardiovascular medications and the things you need to survive your insulin and so forth, right? Insulin shouldn't be subject to market forces. And we saw some episodes of what happens there, right? Where the cost of insulin became ridiculous. Yep. Ridiculous. And I have colleagues in the States who would send me pictures from their phone about how much it cost them to get their insulin. A thousand bucks, I think? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. 900 $800. For like a vial. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. $800. Why did one. go up so high? In America, there's less uh, uh, regulations about medications, so it's kind of more privatized. So they can kind of jack up the prices type of thing. Oh. In Canada, it's much cheaper. So okay. it's like a whole culture of people who come in Canada, get the insulin, go back. But there's a whole Are host of no, issues like, with that. like, laws or, like... Kind of like things put in I'm place. Not sure to what goes on in the states. Yeah, states <laughs> is a very different place. If you have money, you live fine. But it's, I mean, insulin here is I think it's ten bucks for a vial. Uh, yeah, it's, it's nothing. Yeah, it's, it's nothing. It's, it's insignificant. Yeah. yeah, and 
you know, it's so it, it's it's cheap because it's a public access. It's not a s- proprietary blend, right? No. It's not a, a recipe that somebody owns. It's it was made free, in the nineteen hundreds right? type of thing. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, so probably even ten bucks is a healthy. And I assume that's you know what people pay for it after they had some deduction from. Yeah. That's probably their copay. Yeah. So probably even at twenty five bucks a dose or a uh, supply. That's probably still a pretty significant markup. But thousand dollars? I don't know. Thousand dollars is just ungodly. Yeah. Like, what is that? And you know, imagine now people. So, and then we see in the research all the discussion about how people then have to space their. You can't space doses of insulin out. I mean, you could maybe for pain yeah. medication or something. You could say, "Well, I can survive. I can tolerate it this long." And people do this, right? Where they they start spacing out their Vicodin, or they're scared of becoming addicted, so they space out their Vicodins or what have you longer and longer to try and spend less well that's pain so I mean if you can handle it then you can do it and if you can't then don't but insulin doesn't care right insulin's not something you can just I feel like I can you know my pancreas doesn't work but I somehow can process those sugars no you can't right you will you will die mm-hmm. so they can't do that but we saw episodes where people were skipping a dose um, and you know there's no situation where that's okay but people are having to do it because you got to make that thing. If you can skip one dose and do one dose for every two you're supposed to do, then you get twice the twice the mileage out of your supply. It's just it's just barbaric. And the issue is too in America they lost their jobs during COVID while the prices were high, so they don't have enough money. They have to buy the insulin. It's a whole host of issues actually. Exactly, yeah. and the private insurance companies are private insurance companies. So if the price goes up too high, they will cover only what they cover. Exactly. So if you happen to have a you happen to have health insurance in the states it's not like it just will accept whatever the cost is right if it inflates i don't know nine times ten times 20 times the price they're gonna leave you they're gonna say well your copay is now bigger it will just mm-hmm. increase with that so then it becomes 850 800 750 these are people i know who work at universities who have good health plans right with like blue shield and stuff like that in the states so those are considered to be really good insurance plans and they were you know got the $500 what they paid for their insulin right and that's after the insurance companies paid something ridiculous too you know and then they would say well I'm really getting I'm really getting stressed I really think I'm going to start playing around I said I'm not a real doctor but I know even I know that's a bad idea and they're like well I know but it became like starting to make tough choices mm-hmm. like life or death choices well it's like well we got to eat or do I mess with my insulin I mean those decisions these are not people down on their luck. These are university professors who make decent coin, and they're making that decision. So that means that if you're a driver for UPS or some other honorable but not well-paying job down there, then you're you've already made that decision long ago. Like mm-hmm. you're, that ship has sailed for you, and now you're making the tough decisions, or you've already made them, and now suffering the consequences, right? And that's why that social determinant stuff comes into play all the time, right? The money you have and the status you have have a direct effect you know when something changes in health you're the first one to they're the bellwether the canary in the coal mine you know you know what's going to happen by watching them first moving on to the topic of um in general terms enhancement mm-hmm. one of the papers we're going to be speaking to you about is your uh considering uh emeritual cost of action sorry uh current doping laws against the yeah. olympics so as your paper wrote, there's an emerging notion of the World Anti-Doping Agency, or WADA, yeah. uh, and their d- doping uh, policies that should be legalized. 
Now we're going to get into a whole host of uh, what Vada is, and yeah, then yeah. Vada and Vada, yeah. and then also other sports. But just a little rundown for the audience. What does your paper entail? I feel like you'll do more justice than I would. So, it's actually uh, <laughs> it was actually inspired by a Simpsons episode. Really? Yeah, oh yeah. Which um, one? Um, it's one where they're all celebrating Jebediah Springfield, who is the founder of the town where the Simpsons live, Springfield. I, th- I think I know which one. And Lisa discovers, she goes to work in the museum, and she discovers that Jebediah Springfield actually was a fraud. He wasn't real. He wasn't a hero. And then she's all, of course, she's all driven by this impulse to expose him for the truth, and truth is what matters. And then she suddenly doesn't do it, and Bart says, why did you do it? And she says, well, the myth of Jebediah Springfield has value too. Like oh. it's fine, it's not true because oh. look what it does. Something has this positive. Effect. I see how it's connected to the Olympics. Now. So when I did the thing, I mean, I've been opposed to doping rules and policies because I don't think they work. They don't. I think they create more harm than good. I don't. I don't. I would be really disappointed if my child was in sport. One of my daughters was in sports and she took drugs to get better at it. It'd be kind of, that'd be disappointing, really. Um, and I think there's lots of reasons why you shouldn't take those things. Lots of medical reasons. Yeah. Now, um, however, so being opposed to the policy the way they are, I thought to myself, a la Lisa Simpson, what, um, but does does the belief that's, the belief that people seem to have about sport, does that have value too? Like, if I pop this balloon over and over and over again, I mean, I'm just trying to bring people to a better understanding. I think what's the more logical, reasonable, evidence-based understanding. But am I kind of wrecking something that's actually good? The belief is good. And, uh, you know, it was, I guess the end result of the paper is, it's like, I think belief in, you know, you can, there's a value, belief in the value of sport and sort of belief in the goodness of sport, if you want to go with that. It doesn't depend on the drug use of it or the, you know, and that this is kind of a thing that they've brought in and they're really pushing because for reasons other than they really want drug-free sport. I mean, it was a bit of a... Dis- the whole origin of WADA came about because the Tour de France in 1999... Or 1998, excuse me, was a disaster. The Longchamp? Should, the, That's the cycling thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Tour, yeah, Tour de France is like, in, in Europe, this is the this is the Super Bowl. It's very this big. Is, it's the World Cup, and then the cycling, then Tour de France, right? And some other cycling races, too, like the, the one in Spain and the one in Italy. But... Cycling in Western Europe is a big, big sport. Tour de France is huge. Front yes. page sport, yeah. right? Tour de France is worth a lot of money, yeah. a lot of money. And people who want to be sponsors of teams spend a lot of money to to sponsor cycling teams, right? To have their pa- have their uniform be the color of uh, whatever you know, bank or something. So it's a big business. And then what happened was the police, because uh, those drugs are illegal. You know, you can't take them. Uh, without prescription and so forth, right? So there was a big police raid on certain teams. Uh, there was a team named Festina, for example, and it was a big scandal because you had coaches and trainers and stuff like that from cycling teams racing to get out of the country with their cars full of all these drugs and paraphernalia, trying to get it away from, and they were getting stopped at the borders, and such as they are in Europe. So they were getting caught. So it became this evidence that when they first heard about raids, ha- police raids happening on cyclist hotels and cyclist buses, and you know it was this exodus of you know of illegality, right? And it, so it became a huge scandal. And one of the con- so the concern was that look, this is financially one of the biggest sport business events 
in terms of profitability, in terms of economic op, uh, generation, this is it. And the concern was like, could you destroy this? Could the image of drug use in the sport damage the business such to a degree that it wouldn't be the, pro the viable, profitable industry that it is? That was the question. And then right on the heels of that, here comes the World Anti-Doping Agency formed. Largely because, and I mean there's lots of evidence to suggest this is true, but my hypothesis is they saw that as a warning and they said, we got to protect the Olympic business because the Olympics is a big, big business. Multi-billion. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, and they get public money, billions of dollars in public money for every event they host. So it's extremely the economically too. lucrative. I yeah. think it costs like, I think the highest was like $51 billion at Sochi yeah. or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's a big business. And if I'm in charge, if I'm on the board of directors, if you will, of this kind of business, I'm worried that... You know, we could we could damage this. And if people, if drugs, is, if the image of drug use, if it's well known and understood as being happening, and it's going to cause damage to the business, then I don't want that. I don't. I want to be ahead of that, and I want to be looking like I take this seriously. So WADA's formed, and they start with the process of trying to regulate drug use. The fight is like the war against drugs, except in sport. And my point was that that's, it was a business decision. It wasn't driven by any genuine ethical concern. If you look back in the old Olympic literature, you can see that in the 60s, they were genuinely concerned about health. The thought was that cyclists, were, for example, were taking amphetamines, right? Now, if you take too many amphetamines, you overdose, and it's a, it's a terrible way to die, right? And it's not great to take amphetamines anyway, because it makes you jittery and so forth. But cyclists, because their their sport is hours and hours of cycling, monotony, and all you have to do is keep your muscles going, then amphetamines are great. I didn't say that. Uh, amphetamines are a good choice for that sport, right? Mm -hmm. So I can so I see why they would do that. But the, the concern, and all the concern is expressed is saying, this is dangerous. Like, we're going to have athletes dying. And the concern was not so much how that would look, but that they didn't want athletes dying in sport in their sport specifically. So there was some element of that, but it professed to be concerned about that. That disappears. We don't talk about athlete health, really. It's more like doping is an abomination. Doping is terrible. It's moral wrong. It's moral evil. All this kind of stuff. Just barking and barking and barking about how bad, how ethically bad it is. But that's not compelling. I mean, their arguments for it are really pretty weak. It much makes much more sense to me that the reason why they did it was it was a better business model. Right, so then they they enforce some drugs. They don't enforce others, because you know. And then they didn't enforce them very well at all. And progressively, they become more vigilant. They can get more strict with enforcement, because well, the public has to see that they're doing something about it. And there's been episodes in the past where, um, you know, C.J. Hunter and Marion Jones were American athletes. She was a sprinter. She won many gold medals. She won a couple gold medals, I think. She was the American women's leader. She was the sprinter. And C.J. Hunter was her husband. He was a shot player. And he won gold medals in, in throwing. Um, they split up, had an ugly divorce. And in the process of the divorce, of course, um, he, C.J. Hunter, threw his wife under the bus by saying, and she took all these drugs and okay, I have evidence. That's right? an ugly divorce. Well, and, you know, I mean, yeah. so here's all this elaborate testing and here's all these scientists who spend all this time trying to find out the perfect blood test, the perfect urine test. 
And what's the thing that out, that did Marion Jones in? She married this guy, and they had an ugly divorce, and he got back at her, right? The, like a, a bad breakup, like the least technological, oldest story in history. A couple break up, and one's pissed at the other, and she or he For does some dirt to the other, right, to get back at them. That's all it was, right? And that led to the downfall of a whole bunch of athletes and Barry Bonds. That was oh, yeah, Barry Bonds, that was yeah. part of that whole Balco scandal. Yeah. yeah. And what was it? It was without much complication. A guy who is a musician, but a self-taught chemist. And it's this is to indicate how easy this actually is. He just takes out the detected metabolites from the drug and creates an anabolic steroid or an androgenic substance that doesn't have the telltale signs. So those guys could take it. You could be a drug tester. I could be on that. You could say, come here, you're going to pee in this cup and we're going to test it. I'd be like, oh, yes, ma'am, no problem. No problem. Be super polite. Do everything you ask. I walk out of there without a concern. If I've done everything right, I walk out of there, no problem. Because drug testing is not drug testing. It's like IQ testing. If you're disciplined and you follow what you're supposed to do, you score for high. people who know, you're fine. You're good. If you get lazy or you're not disciplined, then you make a mistake, and the term is you piss glowing, right? Meaning that your urine is now showing contaminants, and you didn't do the things you're supposed to do. But if you follow the rules, then you're fine. But I can imagine that if you're having to cover your tracks all the time, right? I mean, you know, everything you do has to be driven around the motivation to not get caught. Then if you're, you're tired one night, and you make a mistake, or you're late getting home, if any of the, the facts of life that interfere, then you're, you're exposed, or you can be exposed. So in all these positive tests, what you're seeing is evidence of somebody didn't do something right. And Lance Armstrong is most famous for that. He had one apparent positive test that somehow he made go away because he has the stroke. He has the influence. But of 500 and something tests, right, he was 500 and 0, yep. right? He had an undefeated streak going like nobody else. But he's also... My understanding from about him is that that's his personality. He's like super OCD, super anal, like really rigid about his this, his routines and stuff. That's why, of course, he's champion cyclist, right? But also that makes him an excellent doper because he would not miss his dosage. He would not miss measure his dosages. He would not do anything he's not supposed to do. He was that dedicated. The same qualities that make you a great athlete make you a great doper. Yep. Adherence to all the details, right? You don't cut corners. You don't slack it. If it says it's got to be plus 2.5 pounds then you add exactly that and you do exactly what you're supposed to do all the time because that consistency will add to results that's for drug free athletes too right but then you throw drugs in you have to do it the same way you can't treat it like oh this is whatever I can just do whatever I can miss my dose I can overdose I can do all no no you gotta be razor sharp to even further emphasize why drug testing doesn't work I'm just gonna name off a couple sports soccer they test once a month you could take uh, you could take anabolic steroids that last in your in your body for hours, maybe weeks. Um, UFC, they their testing, which we're going to get into a little bit later, yeah. uh, a little bit more detail. Their testing is a little bit different. You could take designer drugs, mm -hmm. where it's basically your own testosterone, and it's really it's basically your own body's uh, genetic uh, genetic made testosterone, where no test will book it. Mm -hmm. Uh, baseball had that whole thing. <laughs> I mean, baseball is riddled with it. Yeah. But in general, drug testing doesn't work, especially now with the notion of uh, designer drugs. Yeah. You can, if I'm a, if I'm an uh, athlete and I want to rise to the top, I'll have my discipline. Of course, as you said, I'll be great doper. 
I'll just go. It's apparently not even that expensive. $50,000, something like that. You pay, you get a designer drug made for you that no one can test. There you go. I have a question. For the people that do take these drugs that kind of help them get away with these drug testings, um, compared to the people that, like, don't take it and actually, like, do oh, the Oh, there's sport, a massive difference. Like, they're... That's unfair in a way. Of course. It's unethical. Oh, sure. like, it's cheating. It's definitely cheating. You know, if we talk about, like, that you enter a sport, or enter anything, right? You, it's a this thing, uh, you're gonna, it's cooperative in the sense that you're both going to follow rules, you agree to at the beginning. If you go into a sport and agree that you're not taking drugs, and you make that kind of pledge, then obviously to take drugs on the side, or mm-hmm. on the sly, and not tell somebody, is like you're trying to get an unfair advantage, right? I'm hoping you're still drug-free, but I'm going to take the stuff, and you're going to try and compete with me, but I know you're, you're clean, but I'm not, but I'm not obviously saying, well, I'm taking drugs now. That's where it gets really tricky, too, because there's some sports where the drug use is so obvious and agreed to by the athletes. UFC. Weightlifting. Wait, oh, weightlifting, yeah. right? You can say, oh, I entered the, the weightlifting federation, made me sign a thing saying that I would not do drugs and I'm, I'm going to be tested for drugs. But the athletes themselves might have a different understanding, right? They might know, you know, people aren't being coy about it. They're like... You know, they may not come out and say, oh, yeah, I'm totally on the gear. But, you know, when you ask them, they go, oh, I don't know. You know, they, you know, it becomes a thing where everybody knows, right? So then for you to, if you choose now to still stay drug-free, and he's juiced to the gills, that's fine. That's your decision. But you're not honestly thinking you're competing with him on a even basis, right? So you end up saying, like, well, I, if I want to win, i got to get on. So you go find your that own drug protocol. Sure. Because yeah. that's the expectation in the sport, right? If the expectation genuinely wasn't that using the drug, and some sports did clean up better than others, but for the idea that you make this agreement going in, I'm in the sport, I'm not going to take these drugs, the reality is, just like in everything else, you might learn that that's the expectation, and then you get on the ground level, you find out, oh, no, everybody is on it. And even, like in baseball, people were willing to help. Jose Canseco has a whole thing about how he helped other players not on his team right like people he was friends with on other teams nice and they guy. say like I need to you know you need to help me learn how to do this and he was like the the local pharmacist he's like you gotta get this this and he gave everybody a, a prescription so to say right like he told them here's what you gotta take you gotta take this watch out for this when you inject yourself in the in the, the buttocks you gotta watch watch for this nerve that's where the that's where the sciatica is and so forth like give you really good quality <laughs> care almost right so some sport, like, obviously, if you're a baseball player, young baseball player in that situation, and you're watching people come from other teams to talk to Jose about how to do this, you get less of a sense that it's really forbidden. And, you know, in baseball, they had a lot of that, look the other way, look, don't embarrass us, right? That's, that's the key. When you sign a contract for professional sports, the NFL contract, which I've seen, has a whole thing about the behavior clause. And the whole wording of the drug thing, about drug performance-enhancing drugs or drugs, is not that you'll take steroids. Because the reality is that steroids make the product better. These guys are, these guys are ridiculous. Like, to see them in person and to see how fast the biggest people you've ever seen, and you watch them run, and they run like the smallest people you've ever seen. And then you watch them jump, and you say, how is somebody 360 pounds 
doing a 30-inch box jump. How? How is that possible? Well, it's first of all, you're the best athlete in your whole town. Like, you're, you are a special athlete genetically. And then, let's add liberal doses of quality training and liberal doses of drugs to make the, the effect of that training even most, and that's where you get that. Yep. What they worry about is they don't want to hear, you know, they want the police to have arrested you for having taken GHB in a, in a bar and be passed out, like it's happened, right? And then they've banned athletes for that. I mean, taking a date rape drug yourself seems like a stupid... <laughs> that's a strange behavior. But it was suspended because it was embarrassing, right? I mean, there was a police report, it was a news story. That's what they're concerned about. They don't want people to perceive it as being a drug problem in the sport because that's got a lot of negative possibilities. They want to have the sense that this is a drug-free, clean sport. They don't really care that it's steroids. They're probably even more concerned if it was cocaine, yeah. which could be a performance-enhancing drug, but most cocaine users are not doing it so that they are better at their sport. In fact, it's going to mess you up a bit, right? That's that's why weed is on the list. Weed is not a... Cannabis is not a performance-enhancing sport. It unless, most times like, it hinders you, actually, yeah, with your reaction times Yeah, maybe Doritos eating was a sport. <laughs> You'd be like, i got to get some of that. It's not, but it still is on the... It's, it's banned. That's the most obvious... Disconnect, and then they they after they banned it, they've tried to come up with reasons why it should be banned. So as research has now proceeded about cannabis, because it's legal and you can study it better, things like oh, a CBD and its and its analgesic effects. So the possibility that CBD extract from cannabis could help with your pain. Right now they're saying like oh, it's an un- unfair painkiller, but painkillers are not banned substances. Doctor, if I have the prescription, doctor wants to put the needle in and freeze my knee. He can do it, and there's no problem with it because the doctor did it. So to tell me like that, you know, eating an edible or t- smoking a joint is somehow an unfair advantage is nonsensical. But it's because in a lot of the part of the world, well, in Canada now we have stores everywhere, and in the states they have more and more that way. There's still lots of parts of the world where this is a really atrocious. They don't like this. This is not positive. And remember, the Olympics is a global movement, so. Things that happen in parts of the world maybe we don't think about all the time, but if it's a big deal there, it becomes a big deal, especially if you're in an emerging market, right? So if you're India or China, you have a lot more say than maybe the average Canadian imagines. So if they say we're opposed to this, that has because there's a billion consumers in each country, and that's that's what matters, right? It's like, are you cutting against your own financial interests? And China's going to be the number one economy probably in 10 years. So then it'll stop being about American-centric kind of views, or first world views, if you will, and it'll be more about what they want. And that's why nicotine's not a banned substance either. You could, you can point to performance enhancing properties of nicotine, but in the two most populous countries in the world, smoking is much more common. And to say no smoking, or no nicotine use, that's not gonna, that's gonna, that's gonna interfere with your business model. So that's why they do it. It's, it's money, it has nothing to do with morals. Um, there's a section in your article where you're talking about the distinction between Olympics versus other higher level sport kind of events and one of the things that you say is that doping is considered negative but the blame is on the athletes not on the Olympics themselves could you elaborate more into why that is? Sure I mean they have to inject it right? Well yeah Yeah. but we we understand like look so you're in university right so the university says don't do these things, do these things, whatever. They give you, but you come here and then you talk to other students and you find out what the real situation is. 
So, and it may not be exactly what the university told you. I don't know. I'm just, but that was my experience, right? Queens said, here's what it is to be a Queens student, blah, blah, blah. Uh, then when you got with Queens students, you're like, oh, okay, you're in, re- you're in first year, you have second year, you know, um, they call them gales, but it was softs, right? And they're telling you, like, here, they're giving you the lowdown. And you're like, oh, none of this was in the brochure. So in sport, it's the same kind of thing, right? It's like you come in and you might find out, here's the real deal. But so, but no, the university, the Olympic movement, sports teams, they never want to say, we created an environment that promoted this. Then, you know, you don't want to ever acknowledge that, right? You want to say, like, no, no, we told them they shouldn't do it, and they did it of their own free choice. Um, so the blame is on them, on the people who do it. Now, forgetting, of course, that in sport, for well, in university too, right? If you're a med school wannabe, like you're, that's your whole meaning and that's your whole thing, we know that a 91 is better than a 90, right? I mean, if you want to get to the dance, a 91 is going to get you there faster than a 90. And your score on the LSAT or MCAT, MCAT is the same, well, law school is the same yeah. kind of dynamic. But MCAT, same thing, right? Hey, I got a higher mark than you in MCAT? Sorry, you know, try your luck somewhere else or do something else. So there's like a limited number of prizes for a lot of competitors, right? And that design doesn't have to be that way, but that's the way they've designed it. So same with sport, right? I mean, there's cha- there's three medals. There's not four medals. Yeah. And the gold one is worth a lot more money than the silver one and the bronze one. But the bronze one's still worth a lot of money, right? Um, when Bruni Surin, not Bruni Surin, sorry, Andre Legas, like, the sure. guy who finished second, he's the Canadian sprinter. Okay. Um, he finished second to Usain Bolt. Oh, I they had this funny moment. Yeah, yeah. Oh, of, like, yeah, yeah. Usain Bolt looking at him and giving the yeah, thumbs yeah, up. That. But you know, you, you're fast, kid. But you're not going to beat me, right? For second place, he won. He got a lot of money. But Bolt, of course, gets. That's where your Adidas major Adidas sponsorship, where multiple multiple zeros, is, right? So look, if you're going to make the money from this sport because you put a lot of this sport and you want to compete and of course being at the Olympics would be a marvelous experience but you know if you've got if you need this money to get yourself maybe your whole family out of poverty or you have or you just want that you want to be number one because you don't get to be an Olympic athlete by being happy with a participation trophy you're probably pretty competitive right that's probably your story you know, and it just becomes evident that to do that, you have to do this because of the way the sport is structured. Then, then, you know, the organization bears some blame for that, right? Yep. So, you know, we can say, oh, students cheat to get into med school and their marks are inflated and blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, well, how are we adjusting? How are we figuring out how kids go to med school? Do we, do we decide, like, here's a kid who would make a good doctor? Or are we saying, well, first off, let's get the grades out of the way and then we'll talk to them? We, the system is set up to favor the kids with the best marks. So then we're surprised and disappointed that students cheat to get the best mark. Like, that's nonsensical, right? I mean, it's, it's what it is, it's not nonsensical. It makes perfect sense. They know they're to blame. They know they share some of the blame. But they don't want to... It's in their position of power to pass it down to, to the athletes or to you, right? To say, like, bad, you shouldn't have done that. And that's my actual job, right? If you cheat on something, you come to see me. So I'm the one you actually confront. So I, and I recognize the position here. It's like no kid cheats because they think it would be fun, right? They cheat because they feel like they have to do it. It's not a recreational activity. It's a thing they do out of necessity. 
I've never met anybody who said, like, oh, I just did it to see if I get away with it. Maybe that's in there, but they're always doing it for a reason, right? To better their position for this. So it'd be different if kids did it for fun. Mm-hmm. They don't, right? They do it for a purpose. So the purpose, obviously, is not their, not, it's not their doing. The purpose has been told to them. Here's what you need to do to get this. And then they do it. So there's the organizational culpability there, right? You know, you can't tell, can't tell kids just competing is the best part about being in the Olympics. When, you know, well, enjoy your Honda because this guy's driving home in a Mercedes-Benz the latest, right? Because he won, right? And if you are competitive, you don't, you want that, you want that car, right? Or you want whatever that car represents from that, you know, you don't want to let it go. So, of course, it becomes easy. And if it's the expectation that drugs are part of your sport, then, you know, it becomes really easy. Not because the person's lazy or immoral, but because they see that this is accepted practice. If something is okay, and you suddenly say it's not okay, you don't always, people don't always get the idea that it's actually, you need to be sincere about it. And that's one of the criticisms of drug, of WADA and others, is that this whole thing's not really sincere. It's, if it's just image, then whatever, right? You don't, you don't take it so serious. It's not a real moral thing. It's a business thing. It's just the way they don't want to appear a certain way. Well, that's not really compelling, right? If it was genuinely morally compelling, then that would be a different issue. But it's not. And everybody can see that. And even the people who say they can't see it or say it's not true, I think there's a certain amount of insincerity there, really. And I just want to highlight the benefits and the incentive for athletes to do it first of all you said the money uh the flame the prestige and the glory also anabolic uh, steroids increase reaction time they increase cardiovascular output they increase um aggression specifically for aggressive sports such as ufc mma uh boxing mm-hmm. so there's a whole host of benefits that you just can't like willpower over like mind or matter i'll work harder than the next guy no. If you can increase your reaction time and cardiovascular output by de- standard deviations, mm-hmm. someone's not going to just keep running on the treadmill to reach you. That's just not possible. There is a limit to human body. Now, um, getting to the aspect of, I kind of wanted to speak about MMA. Yep. And the reason was because it's a little bit different. That sport, even I'll reference Nate Diaz, who was a very pro- predominant MMA fighter. Yep. He's Everyone's on steroids. That's what he said himself. Yep. Do you think, and I think this myself, do you think if you do steroids in contact sports where you're hitting someone with the intent to hurt them is attempted murder? In my opinion, I, I personally am in the school of thought because I know I'm taking this drug that can do, truly hurt someone and he will never recover right. from it or she. And I'm still taking it to reach the top at his, uh, at his or her health risk. But yeah. you're not trying to kill them in but the But you sport. are. You're hitting them with intent. But there are the people who died in boxing game, and MMA. But you're not trying to like kill somebody. Like At the end of the tournament, nobody people aren't supposed to die, right? In boxing and MMA, you hit the person until the ref brings you the ref takes you off of him or he is knocked out. Concussive blows. Enough concussive blows become CTE, where something you cannot recover from. It's permanent brain damage, where the where there are fighters who've lost basic motor function and ability to speak. So in that sense, it's pretty much close to attempted murder. There's people who've died in boxing and MMA. Sure. And I, I see what you're saying, right? But the 
there's always, if you look at videos of MMA, like the best knockouts, right? Where it always comes up in like the feed on TikTok and stuff like that. You watch, so somebody will get rendered unconscious, right? Some there's a kick or a hit, a punch or whatever, and the person goes and they're starched, like they they get all stiff and they fall over like a tower, yep. like it's falling down. Um, you know, the rule is, of course, people go like, "Well, I keep I keep punching until the referee pulls me off." So they'll run in for this last punch. And I'm always, it's cringe, it makes me cringe so bad because the guy's clearly out. But if the referee's not in the right position to stop him right away, then somebody comes diving in with one more punch and the guy is not even conscious to, can't defend himself. Exactly. Why did so, he even do that? Well, the ref has to pull you off and you have to keep hitting him even after the concussive blow to the, for the ref to like, oh, he's not in an ability to protect himself. I'm going to pull this fighter off of him. It's really bad refereeing. Yeah, it is. I mean, like, he's right, but my value judgment on it is like, man, you can tell the difference. So people fall, and they have lots of examples in the sport where somebody's gone down, looks like they're done, and then suddenly they come back. Robbie Lawler versus Ben Askren. They, they get a, an ankle lock on, and the person has to tap because, you know, the person ran in going like, oh, you're dead meat, and they charge in, they're going to finish them. And the guy has kind of played a little bit of possum, uh, meaning, like, he's faked, like, oh, I'm unconscious. Come in and finish me off, and then hook, hook, got some kind of hook on them, and, and it's going to choke them out or something. That we see that a fair bit too, right? But yeah, I mean, there's a difference. You should probably visually be able to tell the difference between a guy crumples with no power over their limbs as they fall into pieces versus something more staged. But you know, it's interesting. There's a piece of video up there, and I can't believe I'm going to cite this guy, but Mike Tyson mentions they asked him about his because he took all kinds of drugs and stuff and he said i don't care about steroids you want to swim faster run faster throw a javelin or what go whatever i don't care use the drugs but in, in combat sports he was opposed and the logic is actually really good he's like look you know you've got another person you throw a javelin or you swim and you take a bunch of drugs to swim faster what's the what's the harm if the harm is really to you like if you're taking a bunch of drugs you're taking risk with your own health but it doesn't harm the person in the lane next to you, right? They're not going to suffer any kind of direct physical harm. But if we're fighting, right, if we're in jiu-jitsu or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're choking me and you're on steroids, you have more aggression, more strength than you probably should have, you know, I'm, I'm exposed. Like uh, that, the that possibility, the whole point is to harm the other person in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. And, but if you have more capacity to harm me, then... That's even worse. You know what the worst sport of all, though, for is? And we'll have a drug problem, and then we'll have... Is that the thing that's happening, you know, the slap the slap? Oh, so, uh, uh, power slap. Power and, slap yeah. and all that stuff. So here's the difference. So in MMA, you have two people who have trained with people who are knowledgeable. They have defense. Like, yeah. they know how to block stuff. So the sometimes... The is to protect yourself and yeah, not get hit and Sometimes hit. the punches look really impressive, make a big sound, but they've actually hit somebody's arm when they, they put it up to block it. So it's not... The real effect of it's not bad it just seems really cool seems like really aggressive and violent but this is like where you have to stand with your hands behind your back and someone they take turns slapping each other until somebody basically goes out so it's just it's pure concussion theater so you can imagine here's this is even worse and i imagine people will be using drugs for this as the money increases and what you have to do is be able to take a slap and give one so of course more power means more money so it will happen but it's the worst sport because the whole it is an emerging thing. The whole point of it is to basically, like, who can resist a concussion first? Who can remain conscious? And the, the, actually, the winner is in the worst situation because 
being exposed to more subconcussive blows is not better than passing out the first time. Exactly. Because we know from concussion research that just because your lights are still on doesn't mean that that's a harmless activity. And uh, and power slaps, not specifically, but in other organizations, there's this thing called clubbing, where they don't slap you with their palm. They actually slap you with the hard bones right in the wrist. So they come in like that. So it's basically a punch. It's a concussive punch to the face with no protection. It's extremely dangerous. And a lot of doctors, uh, sports scientists and sport doctors, medical doctors have come out against it because... How many blows you could take before CTE? How many blows you could take before you can't even speak anymore? No. It's it's terrible. No, yeah. and like the slap is not harmless, right? Because one of the one of the effects of concussion is comes from what they call coup contra coup. So it's like if I wrote if I slapped you for some reason, slap and your head rotates and then it comes back, but you're not knocked out. You're just mad now. But the thing is, your brain is already jostled and then jostled back because of that physics, right? So I you're not knocked out. You're, you're conscious, you're, you, know, you can talk trash, you can do whatever it is. It doesn't seem to have any effect, but you do that enough times. That's progressive uh, additional harm and damage, just mounting up, mounting up, mounting up. So that's where you get CTE and stuff like yeah. that. We kind of really focus on this dramatic, like somebody got rendered unconscious. Yeah. So you've seen these videos in this, this sport. We'll Spinning it, head kicks. Where, yeah. Or even the slap fight where yeah. they not, somebody goes straight down in a pile. Right? And it's like, wow, that's really impressive. And that's great video. That's a great TikTok thing. But that guy's not necessarily better, worse off than somebody who's not going down. Right? And in boxing, you've known that for a long time. These guys who never got knocked down like George Chavalo was this famous Canadian boxer in the 60s and 70s. I think into the 80s. Right? Never got knocked down. Right? And it's like, wow, that's a tough guy. What a great chin. Yeah, but you know, that was mounting. I mean, and that's great. That's really amazing accomplishment, really, in boxing. But of course, it's not, doesn't mean that not bad stuff's not happening, mounting up. And of course, it did, right? He ended up having suffered the effects of it, as I think lots of boxers do. So if you get, get your lights turned out a bunch of times, people think that's the really worst one. But we don't have evidence that that's actually the that's worse necessarily they're all bad because in boxing you could take a concussive blow and have 10 seconds to recover and then yeah. get up to take another concussive blow that's why there's an argument or school of thought that MMA is more safe than uh, boxing mm-hmm. I, they're both unsafe sports but yeah. uh, pick your poison really yeah. uh, getting to the point of uh, steroid use in MMA yeah. there's um, again we're going to talk about the testing so I'm going to be referencing uh, this guy named more plates more dates he's He's very knowledgeable in oh, this yeah, sport. Yeah. Do you know yeah, him? Oh, yeah, he's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. I love him. Uh, he spoke about how uh, there's this fighter, uh, not to name names, but like he was exp- explaining how he thinks uh, Paulo Costa is on steroids. <laughs> One of the things about the testing that was very interesting, in my opinion, is that this is specifically for uh, male uh, sport athletes. He looked at the free testosterone yeah. uh I think deciliter per liter, something like that, yeah. over estrogen levels. Yeah. So a normal Caucasian man scientifically has about a one-to-one ratio. Uh, scientifically, uh, man, men from Asian descent have about almost a one-to-one ratio, a little bit less, and men from uh, African-American descent have a little bit more than one-to-one. Mm-hmm. Now, in the UFC or MMA or anything, it used to be, as you've said, uh, eight-to-one ratio. Mm. That used to be where the testing was like, oh, now you're doing steroids. Went down to four-to-one. Now, a normal human being has a one-to-one, and these guys are, can get up to four-to-one ratios, right? And then one of the prime examples was with uh, Paulo Costa. Another example was with um, John Jones. 
who came into a fight with 190, uh, 190 level of t- uh, testosterone, right. which is, if the audience does, does not know, that's about a, n- a man in his 90s yeah. having a level of testosterone. Because yeah. the average is about 350 to 650 for yeah. a normal man. Yeah. What do yeah. these ratios represent? The ratios represent how much testosterone you have over estrogen, and it's, there's a normal ratio of one-to-one. That's basically what it is. Uh-huh. You, like Every man almost that doesn't take testosterone and just has normal levels of testosterone has to have a one-to-one almost. These people are going up to four-to-one, eight-to-one. So oh, it's okay. extremely ridiculous. And again, I emphasize the point that if you're doing these in-contact sports, even as you referenced Mike Tyson mm-hmm. said, it is attempted murder in his mind as well. Because mm-hmm. you're really coming to hurt someone even more than possible. Yeah, I think when you're putting... You know, you're, that's an interesting discussion. And, and why steroids aren't even the optimal drug for that sport, I don't no. think. Like, the thing that kills those guys sometimes, I, I mean, one of the things is that they run, out, they run out of gas, right? They don't have enough endurance. There's drugs for that. Like, I don't care what physiological feature you want to emphasize. I, got, I don't got drugs for it, but I know exactly what drug you would take for it. So even if you were um, in darts, right? You say, like, I want to throw darts. You don't need a cardiovascular engine for darts. You don't need advanced deltoid development for darts but you could use like a beta blocker that lowers your heart rate calms everything down because you need to be able to concentrate and throw your dart with accuracy and not have it interfered with with the other physics there's a drug for that so whatever sport so people sort of focused on like big contact sports rugby football um or extreme boxing mma or extreme endurance sports like tour de france triathlon it's crossfit these kind of sports that have very specific extreme demands, people are always saying, like, well, that's where the drugs are. But the drugs are in everywhere. everywhere. It's just, it's not the same drugs. So with MMA, especially with weight classes, because yeah. of course these guys well, are sanctioned cheating right there. Cutting down mm-hmm. to certain weights, right? So being huge is not an advantage. Even the biggest athletes have to be 265 or less. So it's not like they can just hog out and treat their nutrition like a circus. They have to be disciplined too, depending on where they're starting from. But then it becomes the drug of interest to me in MMA is really the drugs they use to cut weight. Uh, because you have these coaches who their sideline is, um, you know, cutting coaches, right? So are people who help you. They're your, sport, your strength and conditioning coach slash contest prep coach. So they're the ones who know the combination of tortures you can put your body through, sauna, etc., Mm-hmm. Hot tub, cycling, mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. Putting a stationary bike in the sauna, and then you cycle until you just basically deplete yourself of body water until mm-hmm. you weigh the right weight, and then you can, you know, doesn't matter what happens after that. You collapse in a big pile, eh, whatever. But you got to get to that weight. So it's those drugs in that use that scare me a bit more because we don't steroids. We know what androgens do. I mean, the the list is doctors have a huge textbook entry about it. It's all very predictable. Even in abusive levels, yep. we have enough uh, observational studies to know, oh, when you get to this point, you start seeing kidney function like this, heart liver issues. function like this, heart issues. Yeah. It's all pretty understood. But some of these people, the drugs, for example, with weight cutting, right? Drug use in that is relatively newish. So that's a bit more, that's concerning to me because you have these athletes really struggling through some pretty extraordinary and the possibility of dying at that moment steroids aren't you take a bunch of steroids we could bring I should have brought some to cloud here and we could have all done it the chances of you having some adverse reaction is going to cause you to die now virtually nothing it's 
prolonged use, right, at high enough dosages. When we get to weight loss or these, these diuretics, there we could bring diuretics and everybody takes diuretics here and we watch what happens on the camera. The thing is, there's a good chance one of you or one of us has an adverse effect right then and, and suffers, right? Even like Lasix and things like that. Just basically drain the water of your system, but then your electrolytes go out, get off balance, right? And then you could suffer a heart attack, even being otherwise healthy, right? So it's not a, that those drugs are scarier to me. Yeah, and yet, my too. Yeah. Doesn't, if you could be a drug-free athlete, but you would do that because it's just a one-time, it's not something you use for training. You use it just before stepping on the scale to qualify for your contest. Jay Dillashaw was a great example. Yeah. He went. He was a 135-pound fighter, yeah. usually, yeah. and he normally weighs around 160, 165 yeah. to 70. He cut down to 125, yeah. and he was explaining it. Of course, he did EPOs, which are extreme no-nos in mm -hmm. uh, the sport of UFC, mm -hmm. and UFC is uh, sanctioned by, I think, VADA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, he used EPOs, pulled out the blood in his uh, body as well. So imagine, on top of doing EPOs, all those drugs of trying to get all of the body weight out, he's taking blood out of his own body to weigh less. Yeah, but you that's could die. that's the but that's yeah, but that's what they do, right? You and this is for a sport that the guys are underpaid at, and the women. Yeah, right. Yeah. All the athletes in this sport are badly underpaid. Connor is just a bad example of getting overpaid. Well, the top, yeah. yeah and the, the, he's the only top guy, though, right? The like champion paid that much. walked away from exactly. a pretty healthy. Contract ten million dollars a fight, you know, something like that. But that's that's the that's the marquee guys. Yeah. If you're fighting underneath, your money is more like fifty thousand dollars, and you've paid. You have to pay out. It's like a business. Yeah. You're like a business person. You have to pay out for all your training and everything. Taxes. And then if you win, and say you get fight of the night, which is a bonus, right? So they're like, oh, you might get seventy five thousand dollars, but you probably spent more than that just in getting ready for it, or you know, close to that. And everybody gets a slice of your money, and now you've, after you've paid everybody out, you're not left with that. It's not a very compelling payday for the kinds of things you're putting yourself through. Entry level, they get paid ten and ten, so you get ten to show up, <laughs> and you get paid ten to win the fight. If you 10, have yeah. a ma ten thousand for twenty thousand yeah. for winning a fight, if you do something crazy, fifty thousand on top. So what? You made seventy thousand. Got to pay the coach, taxes, wife, kids. You know, yeah, yep. it's it's a difficult life. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. That's why they're even more. Uh, incentivize to cheat and do steroids. You got to get ahead fast. Exactly. You got to make top, young man top sport. of the card money, right? Young yeah. man. How many yeah. times can you take a concussive blow? How many fights can you really have in you before permanent brain damage? It's a very difficult sport and with a lot of difficult eth ethical decisions. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. It's, you know, that'll be interesting to see how that sport plays out in terms of the athletes pushing for, union pushing for... I think it will happen. I hope so. I'm a big fan of the UFC, and I really hope some unionization happens so these guys get paid a little bit better. Yeah. So they have a better life, you know? They're putting their body on the line, their mind on the line, everything. Their parent... There's uh, Matt Hughes. Uh, yeah. Are you aware of him? Yeah. The very sad story where uh, after all the concussive blows he's taken in the MMA, he sadly walked over the train tracks and yeah, got yeah. hit. It's yeah. a very sad story, but he had issues with his uh, brain. He, I think sure. he had... Parkinson's, he couldn't walk straight, right? And that came from a lot of that. Yeah, Parkinson's stuff. is yeah. that tremor, exactly, the, yeah. where you can't uh, intentionally your ability to say pick up this mug is interfered with by your tremors. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's. I mean, and that's, that's a microcosm of any sport, right? Where it's like the athletes know you have 
like the idea of like being a prof, right? You know, maybe you'll retire at sixty-five, but you don't have to, right? Like you're in ten years, so you're basically here till the day you choose to leave. But yeah, as an athlete, you got a clock of what in the NFL it's not quite three years, yeah. right? That's the average. So that means half of those people are less than that, and only half of them are more than that, right? And only more enough, only long enough for to make it three years, right? So that tells you. You're that's a lot of you're cooking a lot of sausage, right? Like you're just getting processed and you're out. You're there for a year and you're out, and that's the vast majority of the the athletes are there for two years or less. Yeah. I think it's so. like the same way with like figure skaters. Like oh, yeah. Yeah. now, like the age of like the people that you see competing, there's like this emergence of a child athlete. They're like, in they're like fifteen, fourteen, something like that. They're like that very was the young. thing. Yeah, when when the Russian woman yeah, yeah. tested positive, the young girl, mm-hmm. yeah. people were calling me saying like. There's doping and figure skating. Of I'm like, course, well, of course, there's doping and figure skating. Every First of all, sport. figure skating is a big money sport, mm-hmm. right? So if you were her and you were like the next big thing, you're that's that's making some serious coin because you'll go on tours after you say you win the gold. Now you go on tours for three more years. You can tour with any number of people, become the marquee person. Just money, 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 right? You're making good coin, and so and like I said. Tell me what physical attributes you need enhanced. I can do that for you. I can't actually do that, but I know who. I know. I don't know who either. <laughs> I know how you would do that, right? And probably without much looking, somebody has slid into my DMs who does that for a living, right? So like, hey, I heard you think doping's okay, or whatever. You know, like there's there's people who do this job. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it doesn't didn't surprise me in the slightest because I mean, what is it? People have this vision of like, for example, steroids. They think like, oh, it's like it's like a you know, sculptor putting more clay on the body, like oh, more deltoids, and more pectorals, and more trapezius muscles, and like you can just shape the body a certain way. But it, it what it does is it allows it facilitates faster muscle protein synthesis and recovery. So you train, so you're a figure skater, and you've trained for three hours, right? And it's jumps and it's all this stuff, and like your leg muscles will rec- all the muscles involved. It's a whole body sport, of course, right? But you know, you need to recover before you can do that kind of work again. Steroids are going to help you do that, mm-hmm. right? And it doesn't mean that it packs on weight and you're going to be bloated and huge. We're not talking, you don't have to take bodybuilder doses. You take a little bit, you know, like a TRT level dose as a female figure skater, you're going to, your legs are, you're going to have more, just, so your teammates who are drug free are going to come in the next day and still be kind of lagging after a hard practice, but you're going to be much further ahead than them. So you work on the skills with more efficiency. See, I mean, like, it makes your practice better. Like, so it's not just a purely a muscle thing. It's also the now you can practice on the skills for longer than other people. Long after their quadriceps are burning and they can't do it, and they're, they're fatigued, and now their response time to every, their coordination, everything's thrown off because they're tired. Not you. I can get you there where you, you can practice much longer, so you can develop the skills at a higher level. See what I mean? It's not just a pure, it's not a shortcut it actually facilitates more work, yeah. which is people imagine it's like a, it's cheating in a shortcut sense. Like, oh, you did less work and got more benefits. Like, no, probably. It helps usually, you practice. Usually, what happens is it allows you to do more, right? Mm-hmm. So I've seen it with NFL guys where they're training, they're doing weights and stuff like that to a higher degree. They're doing more strength and conditioning during the season. You're like, well, what the hell? well, what that does is that's injury prevention and all kinds of things positive benefits right you can do more skills and you can do more stuff so of course you get further ahead because you do more work your work capacity is higher so it's not like you do less and get more benefit than these hard working drug free people now usually it ends up being you do more 
you're doing more work, you're doing more, because your recovery is enhanced. Literally, you can come back from that where other people might need another day off, you can come back and do it in two. Wow, that was a lot. <laughs> it's a very interesting topic. Uh, no, about anything steroids. about like, doping and drugs, not until today. It's, it's, it's an amazing, like the subculture is really startling, right? right? And it's huge. And there's it's kids huge. taking it now. Um, this guy, More Place, More Days, he's talking, uh, he did a, he read a post on Reddit about a 15-year-old boy who does copious amounts of, like, grams of steroids. Yeah, yeah. And he, like, grams of steroids can, you know, put your lights out type yeah. of thing. And he doesn't work out. And, <laughs> ever. Sure. You know? And, but sure. the thing was, even though his, uh, especially in the t- time of puberty, uh, male testosterone is much higher. Yeah. And it starts, uh, tapering off as uh, age goes by yeah. and taking on top of copious amounts of steroids so he's got what like a 1200 to 2000 level like sure, steroids sure. right so his muscles of just base muscles without ever working out were much stronger but this guy started experiencing hair loss heart issues mm-hmm. acne there's another thing for the audience if you guys are uh, brave enough search up uh, steroid back scars I think if, I don't know if you've seen it oh, it's yeah. a scarring that will never go away yep. and it's All truly horrific Fifteen, yeah. kids fifteen, and he's just taking drugs that he doesn't know any. Um, he's not educated in, and he's just taking because right. other people are taking it. No, it's, it's truly hard. There's a the old timers will tell me stuff like the old protocol used to be for strength, like for weightlifting, powerlifting, bodybuilding, minstrel, t-ball. Yeah, but used to like used, they used to tell you like people would not help you yeah. get on until they had deemed that you were... And it wasn't like you could go on the internet and find suppliers like you yeah. can now, right? It's that you had to have a hookup. And your hookup actually had some kind of professional code in that if you were just burning up, starting out, they said, like, no, kid, you stay natural. And then when you've reached the mat where you're, you're plateaued and yeah. you're not moving, now I'll hook you up. Yeah. And that will push you over, and now you'll have this whole new series of gains yeah. once you've exhausted your natural gains. But... Like, I guess, lots of things in society, right? People are seeing, like, well, I can get it now. Two Google searches. Right? Going quick. Yeah. Boom. But also, like, I'm going to go on it right now. I'm starting weightlifting because I decided I want to be in whatever, strongman. And I'm going to go on the gear right now. And it's like, why? You know, that's the that's not the, not the optimal protocol. Because also what happens is, say you, and this happens not uncommonly, you know, a kid gets an infection because it's a kid injecting himself with a needle. So... You're going to have some adventures there, right? Like, I don't know how many times I've heard, like, oh, I dropped it on the floor, but I used it anyway. It's like, that's dumb, yeah. right? Like, you kind of get what you deserve. Yeah. Then, you know, inject themselves, get an infection, so they go in the hospital, so they have to stop. Well, they, wit- it's amazing. If it was a weight loss drug, everyone would buy it, because the guy goes from being oh, that's big DMP. and puffy, and they dwindle to nothing. If they, say, have an infection and have to be in the hospital for a week, they just, they, it's unbelievable the difference, the, the negative transformation, right? Like, I used to look like this, and now I look like this. And that's because all of the gain is, is drug-induced, right? And when the drug's not there, they're not, they, they disappear. It's like they lose it all instantly. You know, it's so very temporary. Yep. So that's, it's, you know, people can't believe that. Or they say, like, they show these pictures, and it's like, to me, I know exactly what that is. They do it like, this is how sick I was. And it's like, no, I know what that is. It's like, you know, you couldn't get darted in the hospital with testosterone because it's illegal. They weren't prescribed it, so they weren't going to. And you were so sick, you couldn't eat 10,000 calories a day and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's very, in those sports, it's very unsustainable 
and very unhealthy, right? But again, they're going for, hey, if you're going to make any money in a sport like that, you got to do it, you know, when the iron's hot, you got to strike. You can't sort of plan for long-term anything. Yeah. Another example of uh, weight cutting, I just thought of uh, DMP. It's a uh, cousin to salicylic acid. Yeah. The, the amount that helps you start losing weight and the amount needed to kill you yeah. is the razor thin. Yeah. So people take that. There's been uh, cases of people dying from DMP. Yeah. Another thing, I personally wrote a scoping review for one of my courses about COVID-19 and anabolic steroid use. Yeah. And... Um, well, while the literature is still a gap, there's a gap in literature right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ki- uh, kid presented, 25-year-old man, uh, presented to the emergency room with uh, high levels of uh, anabolic steroids, uh, presenting with male pattern baldness while his two parents did not show and his grandfather didn't show. So there's no he- hereditary reason mm-hmm. for male pattern baldness. He had uh, enla- an enlarged heart. Mm-hmm. His kidney function was destroyed. Mm-hmm. And um, on the... When the doctor asked him if he's taking any anabolic steroid use, then he said no. But from the conclusion of the blood test and everything, the doctors pretty much ruled out anything else except anabolic steroids. This kid, from um, stopping his anabolic steroid use, being in the hospital for a couple of days and getting on the right medication, in three days he had him full recovery. But this kid was on like the de- uh, door. Um, the Grim Reaper was basically coming from. Yeah. That's how bad it was. You know, his kidneys function was shutting down. Uh, I forget the author who wrote it, but yeah, it was terrible. So it really is a sad thing. And basically from the conclusion was that COVID-19 can have a worsening effect on anabolic steroid use and the effects of it, the mm-hmm. negative effects. So okay. well, it's a very tough life. I mean, that's the other thing to, rem- to know is that we're talking about athletes, but the vast majority, all the research indicates the same thing. The vast majority of illicit steroid use, so not prescription, not for label kind of use. So using it for recreational or for physical improvement is done by non-athletes. So it's just, you know, go to Jack's and there's a kid in there with big arms and seems to have a tight t-shirt on. That's more likely to be where that stuff goes oh, okay. compared to, say, athletes. And because athletes are a small number, right? And that's, like, as a proportion, so if we took, like, every guy in Jack's and said, like, that would be a small number of people as a ratio we're using. But then you can, you know, think of every jacks in every town in the country that total number is bigger than say athletes whereas you might find a higher concentration in a hundred athletes in certain sports right who are who are doing this kind of thing but yeah it's 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 people who are doing it for physical appearance um, not for a, a sporting performance thing but as an image enhancement so they even went away from calling it performance enhancing drugs ped to performance and image enhancing drugs um PIED, PIED, I guess, um, to indicate that this is a significant, this is the more significant numerical, numerically speaking, group of people doing this, is people who just want to look a certain way um, for their own attractiveness or whatever, self-esteem or whatever kind of thing they're doing. So that's the thing, it's not athletes, they don't have the corner on this market in terms of sheer numbers, it's sheer numbers, it's men and women at the gym who have no competitive ambitions at all. It's just for appearances. Uh, I remember when I took your course about two years ago, we uh, we had a conversation about enhancement, mm-hmm. right? In any uh, sense, like plastic surgery or yeah. uh, taking t- testosterone in this example, anabolic t- uh, steroids. We uh, concluded that it is ethical to enhance yourself, right? To a certain degree, of course. Mm-hmm. So why is it in these sports that it's so shunned? Of course, uh, we spoke about... 
roughly why, but just like a direct question. Why do you think it's so unethical to do it, but it is ethical to be enhancing yourself all the time? Also, what are the arguments for, like, pro-enhancement? We have the doctor here. (laughs) (laughs) So there's arguments on both sides, of course, right? So the pro-enhancement side is, like, um, why... So if you had a blood measure... uh, that was on the lowish end of normal, and it had a negative effect on your well-being, mm-hmm. and you could take a drug to improve that. Now, I would say, if I was not enhan- against enhancement, I would say, like, no, you can't do that. It's not therapeutic, right? You don't have a, you're not below this arbitrary range of normal. But like I said with testosterone, so if you were a guy, I'd be saying like, well, if you had a 300, that's normal, but three, so is 1200. Right, that's at the top end. So, I mean, in terms of your life and your experience, 300 and 1200, I'm assuming, have to be a pretty different experience of that. But should you be content with 300? You know, it's like, well, I've drew the short straw here. But this is not like height or something that's sort of like immutable. This is something that could be adjusted. So, what's the reason? You know, 1,200 doesn't mean that you're risking anything necessarily because that's a normal range, right? The stuff athletes are doing are not even in the fact, like it's, it's keep going. 1,200 is normal, meaning it's not like this dude is enormous and angry all the time. That's just another person, right? You wouldn't know, you couldn't sort of like think of your male colleagues and friends and go like, mm, 1,100, 1,000, you know, you couldn't do that. But if you did an athlete, you found an athlete who was taking and you took their blood work, Right, it's it's not even in that range. So we're talking about a different apples and oranges, right? But you know, so the three hundred. Think of all the things we do. We do things. We modify ourselves all the time to suit our self-image, to suit our experiences in our lives. We do that stuff all the time. And this is just another. What I found is there's not a super very compelling reason why that sh- should be out of that range of things. People change their hair. They get tattooed. They do all big piercings. They do all kinds of things that not, you know, they, not how they came to this earth, but they're but they've changed themselves for that purpose for whatever reasons they have internally. So, in terms of experience and so forth, like your your day to day experience, it would have an effect on that. You know, so and people do this kind of thing all the time. They take they take ADHD medications to help them study. You do not you, but I mean, the students do. I know they do. Right? I'm not an idiot. And I understand exactly why. Now, you could say, well, that's why should you do that? It's like, well, because the demands for concentration are greater than you have. And I'm not talking about you because I don't know anything about you, really. I just, you're here, right? So then you ask the question. So, like, you could have more concentration. So do you say, well, I wouldn't want more concentration? (laughs) You know, you have all the reasons in the world to have more concentration. So even if you have already really good one, which probably by virtue of the fact you're here, you probably have well above average abilities in that feature anyway. But you're like, oh, but everybody here is in the same boat, so maybe I want to be even more. Now, if it's just for you, then why should I care? Now, if you're doing it to cheat him out of medical school, dentistry, whatever, to get a better mark, then you've got to beat him and so forth, then that's different, right? But if it's just for your own enjoyment, or if it's just for your own experiences, then I don't, you know, I don't understand the... As long as you're also aware of like the risks involved, nothing is risk-free, of course. But as so long is that as you're aware, where, like the arguments against it coming then. Well, the arguments against it are if you're doing that to 
deprive somebody else of what they deserve. Okay. Right? So, I mean, if you guys are competing and you both have agreed that you're not going to do these drugs, and if it's not prescribed to you, it's illegal, right? Like, you can't take, you can't take somebody's concerta that's not yours. That's, that's illegal and frowned upon mostly, right? So if you're taking your, your housemate selling you her concerta for whatever, 10 bucks a pop, and you're taking that because what you want to do is you're in a competition with him and you want to beat him because he's the one, he's in the lead for that remaining spot in whatever professional program you want to be in. Now you're kind of, that's different, right? Because it's not just about you and your experience. Now you're trying to, you know, beat him out of a fair competition for a, a shared, uh, a specific goal. Mm-hmm. That Then it becomes different, right? Because you're trying to get an advantage over somebody else. As opposed to these people who take steroids for their own physical appearance, that's ethically kind of different, right? Because it's like, I mean, I don't know. I understand exactly why they would. And that's fine. I don't know that's always the smartest decision, but that's that's not up for me to decide. But I can see what they're doing, right? But they're not depriving somebody else of an opportunity. It's not like there's a prize of a guy who has the biggest guns in the bar. It doesn't That's not a, not a real thing. But if it was literally a performance-related goal that you both had, and you were using drugs to get get it ahead of that other person, now we have a now we have a problem, right? We have a different issue. Well, I mean, male beauty standards have kind of been ruined by bodybuilding as well, as they're taking copious amounts of steroids to reach a preposterous size that no natural uh, man, right. even in the ranges of two, uh, 1,200 uh, testosterone, could ever reach. No. So, you know, that's sort of another reason why men are uh, sometimes incentivized to take these just for the image, not even for any sport-related uh, reasons. Yeah, that's true. And I don't know. I guess the other thing is that I think there's enough literature that says that sometimes a lot of these guys are driven by real insecurity. Yeah. So you lit- you put on almost literal armor against, you know, you were bullied, you were victimized, people treated you as weak. You kind of got the message that if I'm weak, I'm going to be a victim. So you get a lot of people who go that they say, well, I know what to do, right? No one will, no one will mess with me if I look like this. And, that, and that's, that is true, right? Like I went through life being a pretty big dude. And I got, oh, I, got, I got a pass on a lot of problems because people evaluated what they wanted to try and they didn't do it, mm-hmm. right? And when I played football, I was even more sort of chest and arms and less stomach. So I, I remember distinctly a number of times where I thought, oh, I could get stabbed here. But the person decided it wasn't worth the effort, right? They, but they would have tried if I was smaller. They might have, they might have done it. They might have taken my coat or whatever it was, right? So I can, I have on this side of the fence, I can see how, yeah, yeah, you know, if you were, if I was small and vulnerable, I'd feel really vulnerable, right? And you might want to try to do what you could to change that, right? Add muscle, especially if you were short or whatever, you know. Short guys tend to have this kind of complex about it, right? So Napoleon complex? You know, while in like feeling like they're going to be a victim, so they're going to get... If they can't be tall, they're going to be thick. It's a great motivator, definitely. What position do you play? Oh, I was off uh, offensive line, defensive line, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so so no one wanted to test you? No, 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 very rarely. But you could tell sometimes it was like, oh, something could happen here, you know, and then it would get... You'd get a pass. But you knew, like, man, it was... And it doesn't mean that I would win. (laughs) But... You know, someone decided it wasn't worth the climb, right? It's like, okay, good. In contact sports, is, again, makes sense. If you, have a, if you have a large stature and size and ripped to the gills, you know, you look like a Greek god, maybe someone will like, you know, this guy can really yeah. hurt me. Yeah, the yeah. average population, they're going to go like, you know what? 
I'm um, not going to fight but that But this guy, guy you know, yeah. just keep going yeah. down the line and, and yeah. Russian dolls. I keep peeling one off until you find the size you want to you wanna mess with. Yeah. yeah. So, moving on to a good death. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can you just give me a... topic. Yeah. Can you just give me a little uh, definition of what the good death means? Or a good what death. The good death was... Um, oh, man. That was, a, that was a good one. <laughs> this was a... This is the one where I wrote the story about my wife. Yeah. So, we... Uh, the good death... In terms of definition, there was an interesting article by Albert Camus who was talking about, like, how would you... You know, what's the ideal end to our existence, Right. And what happened was with our second child, uh, my wife got extremely... The reason why I knew what hyperemesis gravidarum was is because my wife had it. And it was, Sorry uh, to hear that. It was... She couldn't... I, you know, I'm like the husband, right? I'm like, hey, you know, I'm going to make you lollipops out of Gatorade. Like, what a, what a smart, nice man I am. No, she threw it up instantly, right? It was just purple vomit everywhere. And at some point, you're like, how can all of this volume be coming out of such little input? Well, it was because it was depleting her, right? She was, she was in a bad way. She ended up in a hospital for about three months just solid getting IVs because it was the only way they could keep her alive, right? And it was, I think what was disturbing about it, and for ethics, what was interesting, it's not just a, a grim hospital story, but what was interesting was that at some point the doctors came to me, right, and were saying, we're talking about, they floated the idea, as doctors sometimes do, like anybody, you're trying to soft pedal an idea, which you know might not go over, so you kind of just ease it in there, and it was about terminating the pregnancy, Right now, I don't. I don't have any particular strong view about that kind of thing, but I do know that. So it was. She was very happy to be pregnant. She never once questioned that. Right. She never. But they had never said. Well, talk to her first of all. Don't talk to me, because I'm not the one in the physical situation. It's her. So you should talk to her. Oh, oh. Well, you know, they were. They were basically trying to do an end around, like a like an expression you meaning, talk to her. you know, like we don't want to do that because that could go very badly. Why don't you do it, husband? Why don't you go and talk to her? And it's like, okay, first of all, this husband's not stupid, um, you know. And I mean, if it's, a, I said, so wait a second. So I had this whole alarm discussion with them about like, okay, is this something we need to be like, or is she in more? Because she never heard that she was in jeopardy, and I stood there night and day and listened to them talk. I never once heard them say anything about her vulnerability. So I said to them, I said, like, are you, is this worse than you're telling her? Which is the wrong way to phrase it, right? Because you're basically saying, are you, are you bullshitting my wife, the patient? And of course they, they go like, oh, no, 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 no. You're like, oh, oops, that was a mistake, right? So the next time, the next shift of doctors come on, you do it differently. You say, like, how is her condition, re- like, you know, is there anything additional to tell me about her condition? Which is what I said. That's a good question. Oh, well, yeah, there was, mm-hmm. right? But they don't want to disturb her because, you know, distressing a pregnant woman who's that sick is not a, it's not good for her health, right? So they were like, oh, yes, it's worse than that. It's like, oh, okay, that's, I thought so, right? So we went on for a while. And it's additionally weird because, you know, I had had cancer in my 20s. Right, and as a byproduct of all of that, so this, that yeah, it, it worked out okay. Yeah, but you know, thank God. Um, they did lots of abdominal surgery, lots of hacking in the lower groin area. So they said, "Oh, we think we may have severed the, the nerve responsible for sperm uh, release in the in semen. So you're probably infertile, right?" It's like, okay, now I'm 24. I'm like, okay, free pass, right? I, it's like, whatever, that's fine. So it was funny, of course, because wife got pregnant the first yeah. time. 
and she she you know like left a note on the door. I came home from work and there's a note on the door, and I I got mad because I thought it was the neighbors complaining about noise or something, right? So I'm in this rage. She goes like, "Have you read the letter?" He goes like, "No, I didn't read the letter because it said to our apartment number, right? Mm-hmm. Like to the folks in one thousand and one or something." So I was all angry, and she's like, "Can you just read it?" I'm like, "No, I don't want to read this crap." And I'm having a flip out for no apparent reason. And she goes like, "Can you just read it?" So I read it, and it's like, "Oh, it's." A note from the kid. Were you stunned? Right? I was like, this can't be real. I was, I had no, I thought it was a joke. I didn't, I couldn't process because to me it was like finding out that you were a Martian. Mm-hmm. Like you'd be like, what? No. There's no way. You know, no, what? No, 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 this is stupid. This is ridiculous. You know, I had to see the test. I'm like, really? This is your test? Like, I asked the stupidest questions, right? <laughs> My wife, like, is this really your test? Like, you know, that's really great, eh? Like, that's, that's what she was hoping for. Anyway, so, so to have the second one, so the point is that for her, she had sort of made peace with possibly she wouldn't have kids, even though she really did want them. She wanted to be with me instead, so that was great. And now there's, there's a second one on the way, and now there's some question, right? So I did broach it with her, right? And she was emphatic that that was not, she was not in for it. It's like, okay, that's, because that's her, that's her choice, right? I mean, you, that's not my decision to make. But she was, but it was, it was really fascinating how they kind of try to skirt like a consent process. Like, it's like, you got to tell, like, what are you going to ask me? You're going to make, if say she said she was into it, you're going to make me tell her what's involved? Like, do your job. But they were, they still were sufficiently, it was still a taboo enough subject that they weren't up for just discussing it, even though that was part of their I don't know if any of them did the procedure themselves, actually, but they knew who to refer to. And, you know, obstetrics involves sometimes determination of pregnancies that are not viable or dangerous to the mother. That's just the, that's the, regardless of your view on it, that's the reality of their job. So, yeah, that was a hell of a thing. That was a terrible, whole terrible period in terms of, like, because we had a long, a long time to go to see what was going to, but they would take ultrasounds every day. And there's the, there's the fetus doing great and you're like how is this possible it seems like the whole gestation process is you know if you choose to have kids here's the reality of it the baby gets what the baby wants if you're healthy and if it affects you that's that's what'll happen you'll lose weight you'll feel sick you'll right the baby just continues to go i'm great in here unless something terrible is happening to the baby but you know they will baby will take what the baby needs is what the obstetrician told us a hundred times and it just that the problem was that mom was was getting pretty touch and go, you know. And it had been, you know, the first one, first trimester. So Solange is my oldest daughter. She's 13 now. She, when she exists, when she was a fetus, they said it was the, this was the worst. This is another article probably right here. But they did the ultrasound. They said, oh, she's got cysts in her brains. And he pointed out what was, you know, this was the radiologist. They never usually tell you anything, right? But this one felt compelled to tell us, like, those are cysts in the brain. And they said, that's usually an indication of Edwards syndrome. And I'm like, Edwards syndrome? I'm going to look that up. That was a huge, that was a huge mistake. Because Edwards syndrome is a trisomy uh, 18. Downs is 21, right? Yes. So 18. So, and what it, it's a trisomy 18 problem. And the issue with it is that it doesn't, allow, it doesn't allow the fetus to form properly. So, unfortunately, you give birth to uh, a disassembled, incompletely assembled fetus who dies. Mm-hmm. That's the, so it can be quite gruesome. The pictures on the internet, do not, do not search it. Okay? It's not, just take my word for it and don't look. 
because it's really disturbing. So some come out better than others, but really the viability of a fetus is like less than a month, and it's you have to like basically put it on life support and to get it that far. So it's like probably not. Eh? I mean, I respect anybody's decision in that regard, but it, for me it was kind of like, Eesh. but of course that was our first one. And we didn't know, first of all, it was amazing this one existed. Secondly, like, oh, we're going to lose this one then. So we'd had that. But then, second trimester, in classic medical fashion, they do the ultrasound. And they go, we're waiting, I'm waiting to hear about this Edwards syndrome. Right? They scan, so the baby looks healthy. I'm like, whoa, oh, pump the brakes. What do you mean looks healthy? What about the cysts in the brain? Looks like they've gone. I'm like, what? No, 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 no. We mean looks like they're gone. I need more than that. Right? And they're like, look. And they go back and look at the old one and say, okay, so here, these are cysts. And here's her brain now. It's clear as a bone. There's no cysts. What do, I, what do you want me to tell you? I'm like, so they just resolve. <laughs> I, I don't know much about cysts, but it doesn't seem like it's the kind of thing that presto changeo in a month is gone. No, they're gone. So we were like, okay, yay. And they said it's the mysteries of pregnancy. So for all the things they know in medicine, pregnancy in a woman's body is just one of those things there's so many moving parts and variables they often say they just go like eh, it just it just is these things happen and then they resolve themselves for no apparent reason like no reason that they know right it's like okay so anyway we would had that experience with the first one now going to the second one the baby's fine but mom is suffering right so that was that was extremely difficult but what it what it clarified for me was we always talk about and people who argue about abortion one of the things they always say to each other is like when they go back and forth about you kill babies and you hate women's rights and you know this kind of really low grade discussion that happens when there's really lots of really difficult additional concepts to think about one of the ones back to people who are anti uh, anti abortion so they're pro life yeah. one of the things it said to them is like well you say that now but if you're in this situation it's different and that's one position where I can say, um, not that I was pro-life necessarily, but um, yeah, it makes a difference. Like in every ethical thing, when you're actually confronted with it, there's a whole different level of consideration that goes on there. Because now I'm just like, man, I've taught this shit for 10 years, um, you know, in a dry theoretical fashion, like everybody challenge your views and that kind of thing, which is all valuable. But then I was like, holy shit, now I'm right in the, I'm in it. <laughs> like I am right in it. And it's like, man, you think it did help to know stuff about it, but I must say that, you know, you find yourself really adrift at that exact moment where you think, you know, I teach it to you guys. Yeah. I teach stuff about this, right? To help you make better decisions. But here I am, so teacher <laughs> teachers on the spot, and it's like, wow, like I don't know what I don't know what to do. And I literally did not know what to do in terms of would I broach it with my wife because um, she doesn't want to die either, right? Like, she wasn't going to keep the kid to the point of killing herself, but on the other hand, how close? Well, no one could really say, they don't give you nice, tidy answers either. Like, you're cancer. You're in stage four pancreatic cancer. Your time is limited, and everybody, you could you could beat the clock a bit, but you're, you know—you don't have a long time. And they can chemo you till you glow. It's still not going to buy you a lot of time, right? So there's that. But this, they couldn't give me a nice, tidy... Because if you had a nice piece of evidence where it's like, I'm sure that, you know, you have a 70% chance of dying, you could present that number, there's a concrete piece of evidence you can use to make your decision. But when they say, like, uh, it's not clear, then you're like, well, 
that doesn't help, right? It's like, okay, so we could all die any time, right? You get by bus or any of that kind of stuff. What does this mean? When it didn't, they were, they could not help me with that. So that was really difficult. But yeah, it was, it was night. It was really useful to have that experience of being like in an extreme dilemma where you have literally no idea. So much of our lives, you have an idea what you should do about something. Yeah. You know, you don't want to do it because it might be difficult. You want to lie you know to somebody. Right you know, yeah. you know, you're going to lie because you just can't take the drama. But you know, it's not the right thing to do. But you're like. I've had it. I can't deal with this anymore. So you lie, right, to get it through whatever you're doing, just to get through your situation. Here it's like, man, there's no, <laughs> there's no, like, I can't just fake it and then get out of the situation. Like, this will, this will resolve one way or the other. And now you got, you see, so you have a time limit, and it's a hard limit, right? Because the kid's either going to be born or not, or she's going to die, my wife, right? So you've got, your clock is ticking now. So you can sort of hear this clock in your head going like, okay, we can't sit on this decision forever. And then, you know, what are the risks? Well, they can't tell us. They don't know. Well, what are the risks of the fetus? Well, we don't know. So the the fetus is healthy too, by the way. Like, it's not like it would be different if the fetus was very, very sick, like the first one might have been, Mm -hmm. where it was going to be born in this tremendous disfiguration and tremendous pain and suffering for two weeks. You know what? I can, that helps with a decision, right? At least you might want to keep it, but you know what you're doing, right? You have a picture of what's happening. Or if you don't keep it, you knew what you were trying to prevent. Here, baby's fine. Baby is super healthy. Mom's not, right? So so then you're like, well, at what point? But she might be okay, too. It ended up being, of course, it all worked out great. But good God, right? Like that was a, there was, that was the dilemma of dilemmas and, you know and she's not going to go for it right so if someone's going to save my wife it's going to have to be me uh right and i have to save her against her will kind of thing well, i admit i can't right i mean i have to i'd have to it's also your lobby her too. yeah but mm. you know yes that's true but on the other hand it's like there's a full-grown woman there yeah. who i married so i kind of have an yeah. like, obligation to her first so what are you going to do going to lobby your wife where you should terminate the pregnancy that you want so bad Jeez. It was about as bad as you can imagine. But it was, looking back, the reason why I wrote on it was, like, this is a, like, what a unique moment it was to, like, actually have to walk the walk. Like, you can, t- you can tell people what they should do all the time about minor, th- in my, you could make minor mythical decisions all the time about whether you'll deceive a friend or these things. They're big, they're important, but they're not, like, life or death. This is life or death, right? And it's like, oh, this is a whole different, and it's my, it's my loved ones. So yeah. that was a whole different experience. And it was, I thought it was, I needed to like write this out to sort of resolve it at the end. You know, and everybody was great. This was when St. Joe's had the maternity ward. It's moved down to Victoria Hospital now, but it was St. Joe's. You know, so we went, we were there all the time. Every day we were there, visiting and staying and so forth with my oldest one, who was the, it was very cute because she's redhead very redhead um so of course the nurses all thought she was hilarious and wonderful and they give her treats all the time she'd be behind lost her and i was like oh my god where's solange looking well the nurses had her back behind the desk giving her lollipops and filling her little pockets with lollipops i'm like um thanks <laughs> you know it was actually it's like nurses like you then that's you want that right but it was kind of like she's like my wife was like how many lollipops did you give her and I, said, I didn't give her lollipops it was the nurses you know 
So, but it was, we ended up kind of living there. It was like a whole different, you know, to be in hospital long term is really a different lifestyle experience too, right? Because and you're, you're still teaching of, at this point too, right? Yeah, I was, te- I would, I would leave and come, I would leave the hospital and come teach a class on Friday mornings at 8.30. Sometimes my, do- one, I never had to bring my daughter, my oldest daughter, but one time I did. Mm-hmm. And it's one of my favorite memories too, because the, the students in the class, right? They, uh, They gave her an iPad. She watched Peppa Pig on his iPad in my class because I was apologizing to the students. I was like, I'm really sorry. You know, you don't want to bring your kid to class. Kids are disruption and so forth. They're like, no, no. They just gave her an iPad and she watched Peppa Pig during the whole class. And I was just like, oh my God, like this is amazing. And more support from the students than I ever got from anybody in administration here either. Sorry. You know, that's the, that's the truth. So it was really, um, it was just the whole thing was such a deep, uh, experience in that you're wholly immersed in this crisis and then you're making ethical decisions you're making the ultimate ethical decisions that you don't you know you're a profit university you don't make life or death decisions really very often right you're not you're not in that position but here it was like literally you know with competing loved ones mm-hmm. trying to decide what to do and it was really really hard and i thought it was worth trying to put into words if best i could because it's a uh, you know, hopefully not too many people have to do that in their life. Um, and here I, I sort of walked that path, even though I teach about it, it's just, a, it's just a, it's just words and ideas, right? But then when you have to do it, it's a whole different thing. And we teach that in ethics too, right? Like people have ethical, uh, ethical viewpoints and they say they believe this, but it's different when they have to do it, right? And you all hear that. But then, so I had to do it. And it was, of course, I didn't get a st- nice starter case. I got, like, the worst possible scenarios for everyone. So that was that. that's the point of that article. But it was, uh, yeah, it was a hell of a time. Good Lord. Ooh. Do you think, uh, as you've learned more about ethics, you've had to make greater ethical decisions? Do you think it's, uh, like... The, as or has it, like, changed your understanding of it. Has the knowledge came with a weight with it? That's the type of question I'm trying to ask. Yeah, but then you know what happened was there's the whole underlying moral of that whole good death article was that even though I had all this knowledge, like I could bore you to tears with what Christine Overall and all these other philosophers have said about this stuff. Like we've gone for hours and no one would want it. But I could. And then all that stuff you know, you're still working off of the same instincts that anybody who drives the bus and hasn't read any of this stuff would do mm-hmm. right where it's like you're really just competing with your own emotional your feelings of obligation to different people and what and you don't know what to do you really don't even though you could seriously write papers about here's what you know this all means to academic stuff it didn't help with the the moment and it was really funny it's like i kept saying you know i know all of this shit <laughs> I, you know, I know more, I know a lot about this procedure, I know a lot about the ethical, I know everything about that, and the end result is, I still don't know what to do. None of that was useful in that moment. Now, I mean, I look back... frustrating? No, looking back, it actually was useful, because it totally, it does alter your, what you consider. You're not prone to falling for ridiculous kinds of thoughts. You, you do keep it between lines, but you don't get any sense of where else to go, right? It keeps you sort of in the ballpark but you don't it didn't help make the decision any easier the decision is still really hard and there's nothing you I don't think you could know anything that would make it different unless you knew facts right if you knew 
the poss- the percent chance of somebody dying out of this, then that would help, right? But you don't get that. You you, you were left with so insufficient information. You still had to go by seat your pants. That's what was the hardest part about it. I have a two part question for yep. you. So. I took palliative care. I think it was 4710 or something. Yep. And it was all about uh, end-of-life care. Mm-hmm. So end-of-life care right now is in like a transitory period. There is some good and bad with it, and yeah. it's it's becoming much more improved. COVID really highlighted that as well. Yeah. Do you ever think, uh, this is the first part of the question, do you ever think a good death will be a human right for everyone? Mm-hmm. And the second part of it is, if you think that, do you think a good because a good death is different for everyone? Do you think the healthcare industry can help accommodate individuality? Yeah, it, they've done several things that are better. First of all, the problem with palliative care in the past was that it was thought to be like the zone of failure. Mm-hmm. So doctors who worked and nurses who worked in it and patients who were re- who were relegated there was like we couldn't help this one, so now go die, right? And I mean, it was nicer than that, but it really was like. Nobody wanted to work there. Um, because like, if you go into medicine because you want your patients to get better and your whole job is to help them die better, that's the, op- that's the opposite. I mean, yes, you could say, well, it's about caring for the patient and this is a form of caring for patients. But really, you imagine yourself, no one in Grey's Anatomy or any of the doctor shows is like, oh, my patients died. Nobody does that, right? Nobody, nobody cheers that. It's not a victory. It's like you save them with this heroic intervention. That you, that's the thing we all grow up with. So to be the doctor who your, your success rate is the quality of the death for the patient, it doesn't, that's not, not really appealing. So Especially in the past. Yeah, but I mean, good, de- good deaths, that was their business, right? It was to try and facilitate. And I mean, I've had other experiences where, you know, they started doing palliative care at home. In Kingston, hospice, and yeah, well, like, like actually setting you up at your house because uh-huh. you had enough. Kingston had become diverse, where it wasn't all just white people and Greeks and Italians. It was now diverse enough religiously that you had people who had other beliefs, and you couldn't. They would really support. They really supported the idea of like having the kid come home and die at home. You know, they basically set up a hospital ward there with IV drips and stuff like that. But the kid can die around their own religious tradition, cultural traditions, all that stuff, not have it in a hospital, right? So a better way to die, I guess, right? So that was a that was an innovation. It took a long time to get there. But it was that's an example of like where they were thinking ahead of like we need to this is a much better way to go. To if you're gonna die, I mean dying's not dying and living is not a question anymore. Death is here. It's very close. It's imminent. What are we going to, how are you going to go out? Because that's part of your right to life also, right? Is that if you can choose the way in which you go out, not of us, not all of us get that choice, but if you get to have some say, then that should be, that should be respected. Makes sense, right? Of course. So now we have medical assistance in dying. It's supposed to be sort of capturing the same kind of thing where you're taking your control of it, right? So instead of just waiting for the inevitable under the context you've created, you can create the context for an earlier exit. Is this legal in Canada? Not yet. Made, yeah. Made, so, oh. yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, because we had a Supreme Court uh, yeah, ruling. The ruling. Um, 2022, I think. It was in March or something. Uh, the, the law went into effect or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 2015, they yeah. had the, the Supreme Court ruled in a case. It was Carter is the famous yeah. name of it, where this woman had been denied uh, access. Basically, the, the existing problem was 
suicide was illegal in Canada, but it was uh, made, taken off the books, right? So basically, if you'd survived your suicide attempt, you went to jail. Oh, really? Right. But there was another companion law to that that said, if I helped you commit suicide, uh-huh. I went to jail, yeah. right? Uh, so when they made suicide legal, they kept the helping, the assisting suicide in the criminal code. So suicide was legal, but helping was illegal. You see the issue there? Mm-hmm. So counseling, assisting in any way, somebody. But then they, so they created this, uh, so there was a famous court case, the Sue Rodriguez case in 93, I think, where she had fought. She said, well, here's the thing. Suicide's legal, but the law, I'm disabled. She had ALS, right? So she said, at the point where I'd want to do this legal thing, commit suicide, I will be prevented from doing so because of my disability and the government makes it illegal for anybody to help me so that's discrimination against the disability you follow mm-hmm. so she got it's five to four against her in the supreme court and the reason they didn't they all agreed yes it's discrimination nobody said that was not true their concern was that if they made it legal what kind of door would they open so they were out of concern for the slippery slope mm-hmm. they voted and the majority voted against right but then when Carter came along, we've evolved this much. People were, like, not so concerned about the, the slippery slope. And so, of course, it was said, government has a year to create a law that permit that regulates this. Basically, take it out of the criminal code or allow a, an exemption for licensed physicians or nurse practitioners to do this job. And that's where we're, that's where we're at now. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the current challenge is... So, sorry, back up one step. So the logic here is that if you have the right to life, choosing a death is part of that right in the in the law. So, you know, including if you get to pick an exit, then that's part of your right, your personal autonomy to choose that. So that's what they have. The challenge now is the tricky part gets to be they had really like anytime you introduce something that's controversial, because of course, uh, Catholic religion and other groups were extremely opposed to this idea. So what ends up happening is that. They they introduced extremely restrictive, really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It was extremely limited. Mm-hmm. Who could get it? The they, they made it intentionally was really tough. Yeah, they made to it intentionally in. difficult to yeah. get yeah. because they didn't want there ever to be a situation that we did have seen since though. But they didn't want the initial stories to be, oh, person who didn't really consent fully dies of maid. And, you know, now it's all, you know, it's eugenics and it's all, like all that kind of stuff. Euthanasia. They didn't want that. They wanted people have to be, <laughs> the people have to be questioned a lot. They have to agree and want it a lot and say it many times before they're allowed to get close, right? And that, so they're being extra careful because they saw a scandal potential and they didn't want that. But now what you, so there's a couple of cases that have come up in the last year as we've been considering including mental health into that. So people who are suffering with schizophrenia and depression and so forth to such a degree that they're suffering and so forth and it doesn't show any foreseeable change that they should be eligible because they were kind of excluded on purpose. Because if you're suicidal but maybe not in your right mind about about it, like it's not a rational decision, it might be a sign of mental illness, you do want those people signing up for MAID, right? So there was this not ethically clear, but the point is, in terms of politics, it was thought to be, that's too hot. We don't want that yet. Let's have success with the program the way it's constructed, and then we'll talk about it, implementing that later. 
so that's where we're at now is this whole discussion about whether or not that should be part of the part of the discussion right whether you should and on one hand people say oh mental health people are impaired you know if you're mentally ill you're impaired at making your own decisions anyway so there's a consent issue there right which is oversimplistic right because it's not like everybody who's depressed is suicidal for bad reasons right i mean they're imagining people who are just despondent at the top of the bridge going to jump and eh, that's kind of a character a characterization it's not necessarily what's really there but we also saw some news stories in the last year or so where people were choosing made and there was some discussion that they had done it because medical service provision was so poor that they felt like there was no choice like they weren't they didn't have another choice so they just chose that to be done with it because they were done suffering because no one was going to be able to fix their suffering so that becomes a health care supply issue right like it's like oh their suffering could be alleviated but there's not enough money to do it there's not enough access so they're choosing made instead which is a big obviously a huge lightning rod of a subject but yeah the, i mean made is supposed to be part of the same continuation of like giving you the chance to decide for yourself you know would you rather let pancreatic cancer overtake you or would you rather end it early mm-hmm. and pancreatic been, cancer is a bad way to go out it's yes tough. It is. it's a very tough life and, yeah and What's interesting, so I've been at one maid uh, episode. Oh, wow. I got, get to, got to go along. And it was, it was, it was really interesting because it was like, so the doctor, it was a doctor, uh, a nurse practitioner, a third person that I didn't determine who, that person didn't want to talk to me, and then me, right? And we went, and we went to the, went to this apartment, and they had the number, of course, they've checked 900 times, right? Because you don't want to, you know... Hi, you're here for the assisted suicide. Like, well, I ordered pizza, right, or something. So we went to the place, and we're at the door, and it's like all that boom-ta, 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 boom-ta music, right? And the doctor looks at me, he goes like, he goes like, he's mad. He's like, this is the wrong place. He's mad at the nurse practitioner. She's like, mm, you took, you know, they fight <laughs> about it. Because they're, you know, this is serious stuff, right? And he's like, hey, we've screwed this up. And now there's somebody waiting to have made, and we're not going to find them. You know, it's a disaster. No, it was the right place, right? We knocked on the door, they opened, and they're like, they're here! And here's this dude, older gentleman, who had the stage 4 pancreatic cancer, that's why I keep using that, because it's most my mind, you know, and he's on this chair that they put on top of a table, it's like a throne, right? And everybody, beach gear, kicking you under the table. No, I was like, I, I hope I'm not kicking me. her. I don't Sorry, as we were saying, that's the problem. So yeah. they answer the door. It's we're in the right place. They go in. It's a, they've got a big party. It's a big beach party going on, right? They've got a, a Mr. Turtle full of ice and drinks and like all kinds of stuff. And they put sand in his apartment. I guess he's not having to clean it up, right? But mm-hmm. it was like, what the hell is going on? Oh, this is the place, right? They, he's decided to throw a huge bender for his last time, and it's like this is amazing. And everybody was super happy. And it was really weird. It's a weird thing to prepare yourself for, right? It's like, because on one hand, I can totally see that's a great way to go out. I mean, you could die in suffering or you could just throw a huge bender that you never have to pay for, right? He was a single guy, maybe 40, maybe put it on his MasterCard and let, you know, let the estate figure it out. I don't know. But so then the doctors and nurse practitioner talked to the guy. It was all set. They sat up in his bedroom, right? And he just kept partying. And then at the right time, they came out and said, like, when you're ready, he... He went around and hugged everybody, went in. That was it. And everybody got very quiet. 
And the doctor came out and said, like, it's completed. He's not in pain anymore. And they resumed partying, which was his wish, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. So then they resumed partying. It was, it was so weird, like, to me, because mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I understand. Like, you know, we always talk about celebration of life. It's not a funeral. It's, but everybody's sad, yeah. right? Like, and, every, you know, people are like, it's celebration of life, and they're all crying and despondent. And, you know, and different traditions have different things related to, you know, they might be food and reception, that kind of thing. But it's still pretty, you know, it's not a bender. But here they were having this rager in this guy's apartment. It was just so weird. But, you know, in one hand, I'm like, man, that is a very cool way to go out, right? It's like, have all your best friends over, let them drink and eat whatever they want on you, <laughs> right? And, you know, then it'll be over, and that's the way you go out. That's so much better than the way most people go out, right? Hospital room or, God forbid, like traffic accident or what have you, right? Anyways, that was, a, that was so, like, to me, that's, that's the, best, the best death. Yeah. In a lot of ways, like, because he, you know, he lived long enough with it. There was no coming back. They got the whole, I was at the briefing, you know, the doctors repeat, like, it's amazing the guy made it that far. He was basically trying to hang on so he could get this, because he'd rather have gone out this way. So it was fascinating to me, you know, we have these, in palliative care and things like that, they always talk about these, they don't have a quantification for it, but it's this observed phenomenon where people can hang on. Yeah. Until just the right moment, like, somebody comes from another country they're finally there and they let go mm-hmm. so it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic right anyway this is the same thing basically he he hung on they had no idea how he made it and he was extremely frail right I mean his lung his his lungs his uh, arteries were pretty badly collapsed so it was hard for them to to plug him in to put an IV in and stuff like that they had to work quite hard to do that and I mean you gotta do it right like so they did find it they hydrated him some more got them plumped up, found one, put all stuff in, then they were good to go because it's a series of four drugs uh, progressively more and more sedating until it's basically the ultimate sedation. But the idea is that it's no pain, no problem. So that's the exit. So I mean, I don't know how I feel about you know, we can talk about the ethics of that sometime. We will actually if you're in the class. But, uh, you know, in terms of like if you're picking your exit that seems like it's pretty good because he basically picked every aspect of it including the dress coat which was all beach stuff right he went out in his beach gear you know he was still wearing big you know surf it was surfboarding dogs on his shorts right down to his knees he was wearing that when he checked out I guess that's pretty much if you got to call your exit that's that's pretty much as good as it gets I think it's very important to like have like a certain choice or the way you want to die. My my uh, personal story: my grandfather died during COVID. Yeah, and uh, I can't think of a better way. He had a very fulfilling life. He accomplished everything he wanted to, and yeah. he just died in his living room. He had a heart attack. He went away to sleep. Sure. And knowing him, that was like the best way to go. Because like days before that, he was still working. My grandpa was a very active guy. He yeah. loved to work. He loved to like take care of the house. He that's what he loved. He yeah. loved to always be take care of his kids and he had many kids as well many kids and uh just everything you want to take care of so Mm -hmm. having him die the way we all know just peace of mind to the family and just knowing that he got a choice at the end it's a very beautiful thing and i think end of life care and palliative care needs to be further emphasized doctors should be very it's a very honorable job to to make people choose the way they die and helping them i think it's great i think the strain between palliative care and maid is going to be, do people feel like they have to choose made to get a dignified exit? Because palliative care, I don't know how the funding is. Like, I'm hearing it's reports 
that it's pretty bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad. So do you... So Wait. it's a, like a gamble. Like, meaning they're not funding the program very well, so oh. the quality of your exit might be really quite poor. Say you wanted to stick it out. I know lots of people who, for religious reasons or other reasons, they would want to not take an early exit. They would want to be stoic or be a fighter till the end, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, that's that's great. We know people like that. We all know people probably like that. So that's the way they want to go out, maybe an example to the younger generation and all that kind of thing. Great. But if it's going to be you're signing up for like unnecessary suffering at the end, then that seems like uh, they call it no choice, right? If I give you two options, and here's one, but the other one is worse, and I know I could, doesn't have to be that way, but I've made it that way, so this option is much worse. I kind of coerce you into doing the other, right? Um, we talk about that when we do the. We talk about people who do the cl- the research. They participate in research for marks in the psych and Ivy mm-hmm. first year classes. And they say like, well, you don't have to do research. You can always write an essay. And all of you tell me the same. They go like, no, I'm not writing a paper. I'd rather do the research. So they call that no choice in ethics because it's kind of like if I give you two options, but one of them is much worse than the one I really want you to do, I kind of, even though I can say you had a choice, I'm kind of making the choice. I'm I'm stacking the deck so I know what your choice will be. Mm -hmm. So here, although no one's doing this in MADE necessarily, what they're concerned about is that MADE will become the preferred path and if palliative care continues to be poor and poor quality, people are not going to go, well, I freely choose palliative care as an equal option. Because if it means you're going to get poorly medicated, you're going to suffer unnecessarily and so forth, then of course you choose this option. You know, you get pushed into this option. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people criticize. There are scholars who criticize it and they say, like, well, one's a lot cheaper than the other. Made is a lot cheaper than, the, than palliative care. So they're concerned that there's some kind of policy that there might be some chicanery involved in terms of like directing people towards the faster, cheaper exit than the longer, slower one that's expensive. Mm. I don't know that's true. I'm just saying they people raise that as a, a concern. Um, I worked at a nursing home last summer um, and kind of relates back to the idea that Amir was talking about with accommodating individuality. Yeah. And <laughs> I feel like um, it was really interesting because I... Notice that I feel like in a lot of these long-term care homes and nursing homes, I worked in private care, just basically like you're funding all of this by yourself. Yeah. You're paying like six grand a month, yeah. which is like basically our tuition every yeah. single month yeah. for the care of like your parents, basically. And um, even then, I noticed that a lot of the residents there, they kind of weren't fully satisfied with like, I guess, the quality of their life. Sure. Like... Um, I guess it's really restrictive in some points. Like, you have to, if you want to leave the grounds, you have to get, like, a slip signed by your family in order to, like, go have dinner outside of the property and stuff mm. like that. So that's where it's, like, kind of hard to accommodate in individual, sorry, individuality, like you said. But, um, like, I can understand, like, the policies behind it, and it's, like, there to kind of, like, ensure protection and stuff like that. But, like, it's, eh. Yeah, it's... Mm-hmm. Like in in aging, for example. So you guys probably take aging. I mean, yeah. I know you do, but I don't know what you study in there specifically. But you know, a classic tension has always been, you know, um, restricting old folks' mobility. So, like discouraging movement, right? 
because of course they could fall and if they fall and break a hip that's the start at the end and that's liability and all that stuff but we also know that if they were more mobile if they did fall they have a better chance of not breaking a hip you mm-hmm. see what I mean so there's this yeah. conundrum where you could you know we discourage them from doing the thing that actually would help but we minimize short term risk <laughs> for long term risk right and so that's a, so the loss of autonomy I think is a big thing imagine you're you're 90 Right, yeah. and you've spent your whole life caring for other people, providing for other people. You've been useful. You've been important cog in the machine of your family and all that kind of thing. And now they're going to stick you in somewhere which is nice, right? Kind of like a gilded prison, right? Where it's like this is nice a place. It's not a rat hole or anything like that. It's really nice. But you know, I couldn't go outside for a walk unless my daughter allows me to. Um, you know, and like I'm, I'm subject to all these little restrictions. There's lots of people who would find that to be intolerable. So when you, you say that some of them are unhappy, I totally get that, right? Because they feel like they're being treated like a child. You know, they went from being children 90 years ago to like now it's like you can't make decisions for yourself. And that's not for people who, there are people who lose cognitive function, so they're not necessarily autonomous anymore because they don't know what they're doing. But I know lots of people in old age homes who are, know exactly what they're doing. They are sharp as a tack, but they're still subject to these same rules like, mm-hmm. they're, like they're an infant. And there's others who need that. But yeah, it's that, it's that feature I can see. So your grandfather died heart attack in his living room. Yeah. It's an ideal death yeah. because he didn't have to endure any of that. And that's for 6000 bucks. Like that's, that's, that's Cadillac-level living, relatively speaking. There's obviously much less quality than that where, you know, neglect is probably the norm, unfortunately, right? Because there's just not enough care available. Or there was an intentional business decision made that we have to cut costs, and that cost is patient to, you know, resident care. And we know that happens. In the, when we look at all the fallout of the COVID disaster in long-term care facilities, right, you've got to see, like, oh... People thought, like, oh, COVID had created this situation. Now, COVID just exploited an existing deficiency in the system. It just so happened that when people passed illnesses back and forth, it wasn't going to wipe so many of them out all at once. And that's what we thats what we saw in the review of what happened. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that COVID, COVID did it, but it wasn't exactly the case that, you know, we couldn't have predicted that. If you modeled that kind of thing, predictively speaking, you would have known, yeah, yeah, based on the way LTCs run typically on the whole, it's not it's not a good thing. Um, in COVID, I remember, like, if there was ever an outbreak, all of the residents, they had to be, like, they had to stay in their room the entire day, basically, yeah. so they weren't allowed to, like, go and have activities. They can't dine in the common area. I think there was also, like, a bigger restriction on, like, um, family members that could come visit, yeah. like hours were restricted, things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, we. I heard people I know who had older relatives in those places, and they were like banned. They were they were on record as being like caregivers, like mm-hmm. they were they had special privileges and special yeah. permissions, but they were denied. And it's mm-hmm. like, who's gonna do this for my my mom then? There was no answer. And it's like, but you know, she will die if she doesn't. Like, it wasn't like small things like I'm here to bring fresh flowers, which are. Which is not to demean that. Like, mm-hmm. that's sometimes the bright part of your day. but Or to just to visit, have another human to chat with. But when to, you know, some people needed those people for actual medical assistance and they weren't going to be asked. That, that's just a, that was just a travesty. 
the whole and I didn't happen to have anybody in that context like I didn't have any family there most things but you know we knew people who did of course my mom's at an age that she has friends who are in those places and you know it was she just it's her nightmare and I understand that and I understand why because man you just lose all your independence you lose a lot of your independence right and even if it's not total it's enough to kind of be demeaning especially if you're imagine you're somebody say you're somebody who moved here from another country you built a whole life you went from having nothing to being successful all that kind of story which is not an uncommon story and then you're going to end your life by sort of being treated like you're incapable when you know exactly what's going on again it's different if you don't understand what's happening to you I mean we have you know dementia and so forth right which is a serious thing but that's a different situation than being fully aware of what's going on and being physically capable to a certain degree but being treated like you're a risk to yourself that's a horrible that feels like a horrible end an opposite to a good death is mm-hmm. basically whittling away your time in solitary confinement right mm-hmm. in solitary conf- I mean in prison they're trying to get away with it can I get rid of that because they can see what it does to otherwise healthy people right it, it, they do that as a punishment because everybody knows that will that will wreck you Right, you can. So they use it's it as punishment. Tactic. Yeah, it's a tor- we are social human beings. Like the healthcare system is, it's a two-sided coin. Uh, from the age of like whatever, uh, from the day you're born till about like let's say set into your seventies, they respect every choice you make. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you reach that, like in the criteria and the laws, like nope, we make the choices for you, which is not okay, especially. Imagine a seven-year-old who's lived their whole life. They just want to see their kids, their grandkids. They want to talk. That is what truly helps them have a good death, be happy. Mm-hmm. But if you take all those things and strip them away, here, you sit in this hospital bed all day, they get bed sores yep. and stuff. It's truly um, a sad thing because we are social human beings. I feel like I personally don't want to be dying in a room alone. I want to die with people around right. me, have fun, you know, still be childlike yep. until the end of my death. Yeah. You know? I mean, just little things like mobility, right? Like mobility is progressive and regressive. So the less you move at that age, the less you'll be able to move. And the more you move, even if it's extremely difficult. I mean, how many older folks do you know, you know, getting out of the chair is a big, like, big sound and cracks and so forth. And then shuffle the first couple steps. But once they're moving, they're, they're going They're You know, they got their, their legs back. Right. But imagine if I just say, well, no, you don't get up, (laughs) stay there. Because I'm concerned you'll fall. Basically, you're guaranteeing their ability will diminish. And it won't take long at that age to lose the ability basically entirely without assistance, right? Which is not what you want. But the business sometimes declares that you have to do it that way. And that's obviously contrary to the patient's best interests, right? So, yeah, it's it's a whole thing. That end of life phase is really a fascinating. It's another situation where people will get into it. And it'll be, the good death thing will come up again, right? It's like, oh my, you know, what am I doing? Uh, is this really the way to go? You know, and it's meaning. I think meaning is the answer, right? If you have a reason to get up in the morning, this goes for everybody, but if you're really, really old, and and maybe to other people it's not so obvious why you're still here, for not to be crude, but you know, you know, it's about what they have to go on right and like that depriving them of contact with their family and stuff like that that's a I think that was probably the most injurious thing of all because it's like if you have grandkids great grandkids and you mean so you know you're important to them that's your you get out of bed because they're coming right or they're going to come at Christmas or whatever it is 
So that's the thing, right? You're you're special to them. No matter what you do, you can't do anything wrong, right? And they can't do anything wrong. The, the parents know the truth. But, you know, in between their grandkids and grandparents, it's all gold. Then that's your meaning. But if you deprive people of that, I think that's the greatest loss of all, is yeah. that it's just like, why am I even, who cares why I'm here? I could die tomorrow and no one would give a crap. But knowing your grandkids learned from you, took your mannerisms, you know, yep. all those things. It's a truly beautiful thing. Like I had a good connection with my grandpa. Like we talk all the time. Yeah. And just knowing I have those memories I can just, like, fall back on and just, like, think about it. It's just, like, it's a beautiful thing to me. Sure. Just knowing, like, I basically got a piece of a soul type of thing. And that's, like, I think that's, like, the transfer of energy when people die. Yeah. Having good death is just giving a piece of your soul to the next generation for them to always remember you. Yeah. I think that's just like innate for any human. It, like, we don't fear death. We fear dying alone, in my opinion. You know, yeah. dying alone, dying in a sad death, dying without a purpose or stuff like that. But having kids that can continue your lineage and remember your things and stuff like that, that's the, where the beauty of all lies. Yeah, I mean, LT thing about long-term care facilities, I mean, you have people who are still connected to their family, but you probably, maybe not in the $6,000 one, but you could go not too far to an LTC and find people who are sort of abandoned there. Yeah. And that must be a, that must be a, a despair-filled existence to like I was put here so they would die out of the way <laughs> it's, it's not funny I mean it's I mean, just like I can only laugh because you can't cry about it mm-hmm. it's the, the you know the level of like disregard you know and people have talked about our our attitude so the western attitude about older folks and being this way compared to other cultures where the elderly are more revered or yeah. more valued you know I heard that, and I'd be like, okay, and I knew people from other cultures where, like, a, my, one of my friends growing up was Italian, so I was over at his house, and Nona was the most important person in the house, right? Nona, when Nona said it was good, it was good. Everybody else's opinion didn't matter. I was okay because she seemed to like me for some reason, even though she never smiled or said anything, or she would hit me with a spoon once in a while, but mm. that was good, apparently, right? It's like, oh, you're in the family then, so, <sighs> okay, whatever. <laughs> hit me with a spoon then. You know, she ma- she mattered, and when she died, that was a huge thing. That was the most important thing, right? In other Western cultures, it's kind of like, uh, you know, your parents are a pain in the ass, they're a burden, blah blah blah, right? And so that, but that's a very unique, I don't know, that's a uniquely negative feature of yeah. a lot of Anglo-Saxon kind of culture is that this idea that you're superfluous or you've used your, your value up, uh, which mm-hmm. is not doesn't make sense to me. I'm Persian in our in our culture. Uh, death of a elderly is a very important thing. We yeah. mourn for a whole year, yeah. so a year ceremony and stuff. We have to go to visit the grave and uh, everything like that. Uh, we uh, in our culture we respect our elderly extremely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hope it still continues with my generation onwards. And uh, from that from that respect, it just allows for I think a more beautiful life for everyone. I feel like if you just treat death as like oh it happens every day it's just it's more depressing for everyone getting closer to death like if I think like that in the Anglo-Saxon way mm-hmm. you know like w- what do I have to kind of live for as a young uh, as a young male continuing to uh, prosper in life type of thing mm-hmm. so I definitely think uh, respecting the elderly and you know treating their death as a very important thing and a very fulfilling thing is a very important thing yeah. as well even if you don't have kids and I think like knowing that you had friends in your life yeah. that were like you had, like, a fulfilling time like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I just can imagine the the abandonment you might feel 
uh, of like just being relegated in there. You know, maybe if you have great friends in there, that's even better, right? It's mm-hmm. like people who are your same age and they understand, and they don't. You don't have any of the family baggage or any of that story. It's just we're friends for whatever, right? Abs- you know, absolutely. I'm imagining somebody in like basic total isolation. Yeah, that's uh, that would be just that would be the ultimate despair, right? Yeah, that would be the worst way to go out. Do you have uh, any <coughs> advice for students coming up? Anything, your two cents? Spotlights on you? <laughs> Seems like it's been so dark. <laughs> Got to brighten it up yeah. a bit. No, um, coming up. I mean, look, I don't know what you, what your guys' experience is in terms of, like, you know, the secrets of success. And everyone wants, like, the clue. There's not a, you know, there's no clue. Like, if there was, I would have written the book already. It would be multi-millionaire. You guys could come fly in and see me on my island. It'd be great. But that's, if, unfortunately, I don't have that, right? So, I mean, it's like, I guess the key thing that people would, you know, they do and then they regret about, and this thing is, like, you gotta, like, you guys are different because you're already doing a bunch of stuff, right? But it's like not to get too honed in on your tests and your assignments and stuff like that. Like, there's a whole, like, existence going on here. Like, there's a multifaceted... I mean, when I left university, I remember going, like, meeting people who had also graduated, like, recently, and they said, like, always part of this club. And you're like, what? When did... When did that, was that there? Oh, yeah, yeah. But they, I didn't know. I hadn't accessed it. And there's, like, all this stuff. I'm like, oh, I could have done all this other stuff, too. Uh, maybe that's too much. But, you know, I would have enjoyed it. <laughs> I would have enjoyed everything a lot more if I had been more involved, too. Yeah. Yeah, but we get so, because your your imperative here is you're going to another university or the same, you're getting to another degree program. So there's a lot of expectations, demands. You're, you're at the behest of a lot of masters in this thing. And I totally get that. And that's nothing, is, I can't fix that. And you can't fix it. But on the other hand... And I can't say, like, we should just ignore all that, because we all know that will turn out well. But it's, if you, if we take a slightly more holistic approach to it, and sort of look at the whole university experience as more than just studying and partying, right, which seems to be Westerns known for both of those things, right? We're legendary in our academics, and also Brodale. And that's the, and everybody focuses a lot of their energy on that, but there's a bunch of other stuff there, too. So it'd be great for students coming into Western to realize, yeah, there's those two things. Like, I'm not going to pretend like they don't exist. But, you know, there's other things in there, too, that like a whole experience and existence to have. And they should embrace it. Right? Yeah, I agree. Because they won't remember. I mean, they might remember their favorite class or whatever, but they're not going to remember what the week four in bio was, right? Unless they'll have an impression like either great or they hated it. But that'll be it, right? But they'll remember other things more clearly. So they should focus on that we are all equal in death yes <laughs> there you go that's we were trying to brighten it up here you had to go on down on it yeah. work hard at everything try to find what you like do random things you might like something yeah and don't be afraid to seriously in surgery we see there's this increasing number of people who are there right they're surgical residents that's the peak that's peak parental pride right there right my, my son's a brain surgeon literally brain surgeons right and they're fizzled out, and they drop out. They've done all the work to get to be Dr. So-and-so brain surgeon, and they drop out, and you're like, and in my mind, I think, what the hell? Like, you're at the top of the mountain now. This is not the time to take a nap. This is the time to, like, take your selfie. No, no, It's the thing is that they never really wanted to do that, but they never had the nerve. They felt too compelled, too pushed, 
to do that, and that's not what they wanted. And now they're here. They got three hundred thousand dollars of debt. They're doctor so and so, neurosurgeon resident, right? That should be the peak, and they don't care. They do not care, and they say to me like, "I wish I had quit this Years in ago. second year. I wish mm-hmm. I had switched into music because that was my real love." It's like. You know, I didn't want to do bio and organic chemistry. No one wants to do organic chemistry. Yeah. But, you know, I wouldn't have put myself through that. I would have done cello because that's the thing I really love. And now they're going to they're going to be doctor, so-and-so, MD. But also, like, now they're going to do cello at this point. And it's harder to do it that way. Yep. So, I mean, it's, so it's that it's that authenticity, that idea that, like, you actually get in sense with what you really want to do. Don't give a shit about, you know, I mean, it's hard to don't give a shit about what your mom says. That's not, I know that's not real. Mm-hmm. But, like, the you got to get yourself free enough that you can follow what you actually want. If you really want to be a neurosurgeon, then go get at it, because we need them. But it can't be because somebody else wants you to be, or that, you know, you think you'll be happier that way. Doctors are not happy. Here's a side, you know, memo. Doctors are not happy because they're doctors. They are not, right? And if they thought, this will be the life, right? I'll have all the best-looking sex partners and money and cars. Nah. They, I mean, maybe they do, but most of the time they're miserable. Their feet hurt from being on their feet all day. They've been degraded. Patients are treated like crap. Their administrators treat them like crap. Everybody treats them like garbage. And they're like, oh, so there's no... You keep looking for the... Yeah, but there's a silver lining there. Uh, I mean, yeah, if you get to help people. But then you start finding it's harder and harder to help people because the resources aren't there. And so you're stuck doing what you know is a crappy job on it. And there's nothing you can do. I mean, so that's the formula for depression and dropout and the stuff we're seeing in increasing numbers. And the thought was these people should have less of it because they've achieved their life goals. But no. And that's, it happens to them. It happens to people at other levels, right? So, you know, take the time to figure it out. There's some kind of imperative to, like, get done fast. Like, be... Figure you know, out life by 21. Wait. Yeah. yeah, I need to be out of here by 20. It's like, Why? Because, and sometimes they can, you know, they say to me things like, oh, there's this, you know, I want to be in the top 30 under 30. It's like, why? You know, and they look at me like I'm from Mars. Like, well, you're so old. Okay, boomer. You don't understand. It's like, well, okay, I don't understand. (laughs) I really don't, but I don't know that this is actually as important as you think. But anyway, I I see the negative side effects of it all the time as people start to suffer and flunk out or start to struggle with their academics and it's their whole identity right so then if i don't have being a doctor then what do i have it's like well if that's your if you're saying that then that's the the warning that you need to you know if that's your whole meaning you know that's a warning sign that's a symptom of a big problem coming so you need to you need to think about that you gotta like what you do for the next 40 years no amount of money will ever make you happy no amount of prestige or success will ever make you happy you gotta be happy within and what you do Really, really, that's the best advice. Yep. Truly figure out what you love to do. That's right. And you'll be successful and happy and have all the money in the world. Yep. If you love what you do. Exactly. Thank you, Dr. Kirkwood. Thank okay. you really so much pleasure. for coming on. Well, thank you. I know you sat here for, I guess, two hours or almost three, even though I told you one, but... <laughs> Sorry. It was really an interesting conversation. No, it's all right. I talk for yeah. a living. Yeah. <laughs> I do two hours every like night all the time. Cool.